You're listening to KQAS 460 AM, real radio for real people. It is February 14th, so shout out to all the lovers out there tuning into their radios during Valentine's Day. That last half hour of music started off with the Grateful Dead's own truckin' and wrapped up with Serenade by the Paranoids, paying tribute to all of our Bay Area listeners out there. This hour of radio is brought to you by Elmhurst and Associates. Have you ever found yourself in a hairy situation? Are you possibly orangutangled up in some legal issues that you don't know how to resolve? At Elmhurst and Associates Legal, we are here to help you through even the toughest of judicial situations. Our clients can rest assured that we will care for and attend to their needs through every step of the legal process. So you don't have to worry about the banana peels life sometimes leaves on the ground. Our team of lawyers and attorneys are empathetic to your situation and understand that even the best of us can get caught up in the jungle of life from time to time. So let us remove your legal woes from you like delicious bugs from the back of your closest friend. Elmhurst and Associates cannot guarantee a satisfactory outcome for your case. If the police say you did whatever it is you're accused of. Elmhurst and Associates, a hairy hand, sorry, helping hand for those in need. For KQAS 460 listeners, use the code Dunstan to get out of jail free. Nick, I told you to vet the ad. What is this? Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to a highly fixated review of large, dense books, specifically of the works in context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Kate, and I'm one of the co-hosts. My name is Cody. I'm Luke. And I'm Will. Uh, today, we are finishing up Vineland. We are, we are going to be going through the, the second half of Chapter 15 and wrapping up our third book. Um, in honor of finishing this up, I'm drinking some wine from California while we're recording. Oh, nice. It's my own personal way to celebrate the completion of, of, of this book, uh, which I think we'd all say has probably been our, our most successful sort of read-through so far. Um, so all that being said, Will, do you have a summary for us to go through? That I do. For a fleeting moment, Flash is worried that Hector set them up thanks to a coincidental militarization of the airport they'd arrived at, the LX. Fernese, though, sees the agent's love of the camera, the strength he deems it to have, and knows it's all real. It helped her believe when Justin vouched for his TV viewing skills and dedication. He'd seen them for himself one night, watching the Bryant Gumbel story with the man, discussing the subtleties of the medium until Hector left to meet Isaiah 2-4 at the Cucumber Lounge. There, unfortunately, he'd had to sit through Ralph Wavone Jr.'s self-hating Italian stand-up set as the opening act for Billy Barf and the Vomitones. Thankfully, soon enough, the Vomitones are playing I'm a Cop to a grateful crowd, including one Zoid Wheeler in the role of Average Joe. He rendezvous with Isaiah after the show, having realized the lengths he's willing to go to to secure his home that he'd spent so many years keeping and maintaining. <laughs> 
usefully. Two four knows where to get a barracks worth of cheap twenty two caliber knockoff AKs, a biker gang who'd converted to a sisterhood of self-consistent nuns for tax purposes, but maintained their dealings. Zoid puts off any hard agreements until he has the time to consult with his distinctly furry and upbeat pro bono attorney, Elmhurst. Then, retreating back to the lamb, he runs into a cigar-wielding Hector, who informs him of his arriving to Vineland ex and daughter. Oh, also Sasha, he'd just heard from one of his Hollywood informants, with a straight-edge punk boy toy in tow, had come for the family reunion. They even said that Sasha and Frenesi had met for the first time in years. This opportunity to finally meet her maker had Prairie nearly reeling. D.L. tried to lend a sympathetic ear between songs at a bar with live music in Shade Creek surrounded by thanatoids, invigorated like never before by the tune Like a Meatloaf. Ortho Bob and his pal Weed Atman show up, and Atman gives us and Prairie some insight on the experience of being a thanatoid. They connect over the strange sort of peace he's found with the intractability of justice for his death. But eventually, Prairie must enter the orbit of the big Travis Becker shindig, and therefore meet Fernese. The awkwardness is only tempered to survivable degrees thanks to Sasha's sacrifice of her own dignity, playing as the doting grandmother. Later that night, Hub Gates himself arrives to entertain the kids with lighting rigs and finally meet his grandson, and to see Fernese. The family seem to mix well, Justin and Prairie getting along just fine, and even Zoid and Flash are able to relate. Flash suggests cutting off the head of the serpent, so to speak, but that line of thinking is trampled with Prairie's arrival and news of meeting her mom. She teases them with something they apparently don't get before wandering off into the woods for a nap. There in a clearing, she's woken by the helicopter carrying a ladder holding who but Brock Vond himself. He hangs above, shouts that he's her real dad, and Prairie mocks the notion just long enough for the Reagan budget cuts to erase his funding for the chopper, and suddenly fly away. Prairie's surprised to see another young person, a Russian fisherman named Alexei, who has just wandered into the clearing, looking for the Vomitones, who are very big in Vladivostok. We watch as Vond hijacks the helicopter once his subordinate officer Roscoe leaves the cockpit, and sets off for the family again, only to mystically shift into a junker of a car and to call for a tow from the side of the road. From there, Vato and Blood assume the roles of Styx boatmen, telling him tales of the land, delivering Brock Vond, finally to the land of the dead, his role as Thanatoid. This news of some modicum of justice inspires partying among many of the others in this same state, a testament to his success in his life's work. They pass along the news to D.L. and Takeshi, and their discussions of taking the opportunity to see Fernese gives us a view into why later that year they would strike the celibacy clause from their relationship contract. As we hear a new myth of Eden from an injet lecturing Takeshi while he's trapped in the punkutron for his annual session, we also see a new sense of possibility in there, and it seems the same for many in Vineland perspectives. Prairie seems to be the last to hear about this, since she had gone back to camp in the clearing the following night. She stares up at the stars and wishes for Vaughn to reappear, to offer that germ of self-destruction her mother had given her its chance of growth, and she begs as she falls into sleep. The next morning, she is kissed awake by her long-wandering dog Desmond, finally home from his own journey. 
All right. Thank you for that, as always, Will. Uh, With that being said, let's go ahead and get into our overall thoughts on this chapter. And I guess some thoughts on maybe the book as a whole, even though we are going to be having a wrap up episode next week. Yeah, I, I'm not going to touch on the book as a whole. And I, I know last week I, I kind of gave my, my thoughts on the chapter as a whole. Um, I do think after I, I reread the ch- this half of the chapter again today um, in preparation for this. And I, I do think if if I had to kind of for the sake of all of this, like pick a, a favorite part of it, I think the second half is probably my favorite part of this chapter. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite parts of the book in general. I think it, it does a... It does a really good job, I think, of of tying everything together, of um, bringing his his ideas and his his themes to uh, a conclusion, and bringing everyone's stories and and character arcs to a conclusion. I know I, I've read online a lot of people take issue with the way that um, Brock was summarily dismissed. It felt like I've I've seen people say it felt like a Deus Ex Machina. Um, we'll, we'll, we can get to that. I think when we get to that point of the chapter, but I would disagree with that. I think it was, it was good and, and handled in a very sort of TV appropriate kind of way, given the the nature of this book. Um, and, and this, this last half of this book also just has, uh, some absolutely stunning scenes mm-hmm. that, um, I found to, to be absolutely moving in, in a number of different ways. Um, I think this is, Maybe uh, one of my favorite of Pinchon's endings of any of his books. Um, I think it's it's beautifully handled and it it really just does a fantastic job of of wrapping everything up and and giving a sense of satisfaction when everything is all said and done. Yeah, I mean, I I could see people um, describing the ending of this book as anticlimactic, particularly the end of Brock's little storyline um, with the whole. Um, you know, him, him seeming to him, him wanting to, you know, he commandeers a helicopter says he's going to go basically like kill Zoid or kill Frenessi or kill their family or something. And then he somehow ends up in a car and then he somehow ends up basically in the lane of the dead, I think, or about to cross into the lane of the dead. Um, I see that being described as anticlimactic. I don't personally think it is, um, I think it gives you a lot to think about. Uh, it does kind of tie into the story that uh, I think Blood uh, or maybe Vato tells him about mm-hmm. the uh, the land of the dead and the Native American stories about it. Um, yeah, like I said last week, you know, we get we get the appearance of pretty much every major character, every POV character um, comes into play here. Uh, even Blood and Vato are a little bit more minor. Um, there's lots of like here. I'm trying to think. I had a little bit more to say, but I'm kind of blanking on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, the you know, there's other parts of it that that could be read as anticlimactic. I mean, Prairie meeting Frenessi for the first time. We don't really get a lot about that. Um, what we do get is kind of Sasha taking over the scene and seemingly kind of infantilizing Prairie. You know, we don't get. I don't think we get any dialogue between Prairie and Frenessi. I could be wrong about that. Um, people could maybe call that anticlimactic. Um, you know, we do get. There does seem to be a buildup with Zoid and Van and Van Meter and Isaiah Two Four. 
where Zoid seems to be preparing to take back his house uh, through the use of force, um, which, you know, would not be super, you know, if that had happened in this book, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have liked it probably in the end. I think I would have enjoyed reading it in terms of, you know, pension writing action scenes. I think that would have been fun to read. Um, but it's, it wouldn't have been realistic for Zoid as a character. Um and I don't, I don't really know what the end game of taking back your house by force from the feds would be because they would just keep throwing people at you until you died, I would assume. Um, but, you know, that does seem to be foreshadowed and it's not fulfilled. Um, you know, even like the whole like Brock Vaughn dropping in on Prairie and then getting called off right at the last minute when he's seemingly about to abduct her. Um, could also be raised as anticlimactic. Um I get I'm saying anticlimactic a lot, but I, I do love the ending of this book uh, in a lot of ways. There's a lot of, it, he kind of subverts our expectations, Pynchon does. Um, and I don't know, like the very end of the of the book, kind of like, it, it reminded me somewhat of Mason and Dixon, where it's kind of a little bit more like of an emotional ending, a more like, rather than wrapping up all these plot threads and giving us like super cool climax, he just kind of goes for goes for the heart instead of going for uh the you know like entertaining your mind he more kind of tries to play with your emotions a little bit um and i love that the book ends on the word home um it does kind of wrap around to the beginning a little bit in that we start with zoid and bed at home and the last word of the book is the word home um and as i said before in a prior episode you know i do love desmond and um I love that the book ends with Desmond finding prairie in a basically, I guess, you know, a literal prairie, I guess, in some ways, a clearing in the woods. Um, just the imagery of, of Desmond, you know, roughened, roughened by the miles, face full of blue jay feathers, smiling out of his eyes, wagging his tail, thinking he must be home. Um, it didn't make me cry or anything, but it definitely, you know, pulled at my heartstrings a little bit. And um, I do think the prairie in a lot of ways. It's kind of the heart of this book. Um, you know, without Prairie, I think... Without Prairie being born, you know, Brock Vaughn probably wouldn't have banished uh, Zoid to Vineland. Uh, he may not have tried so hard to control Prairie, or control Frenessi. Um, So, you know, a lot of the plot kind of revolves around Prairie. So I do like that it wraps up with the scene of just her and, and the dog. And yeah, I, I, I really like the back half of this chapter a lot. There's some really strong prose sections. The uh, little section about hell taking over the earth uh, is also pretty enjoyable, although I do find it kind of hard to parse and a bit nebulous in terms of what it means. Uh, but yeah, I really like the, the back half of this chapter. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of the best stuff about it. I, I agree that in terms of the uh, the strength of the prose and the strength of the characterization in this back half, and I, I love the way that we do see Prairie. In all of these moments that we've kind of assumed about her you know just you know talking with her grandmother or you know spending time with her dog because really we we haven't actually seen any kind of normalcy in her life other than the conversation about isaiah 24's business dealings but um in more, more generally i i think the the climacticism of this last set of scenes is kind of interesting because it it is emotionally resonant for me and it, it at the same time plot wise it is truly it builds to nothing you know brock shows up 
and he gets, as you said, summarily executed, Cody. Um, but he's he is also dealt with. It's not like he just disappears from the story. And the characters who we have spent the most time with do disappear from the story. Uh, but at the same time, they feel like they've reached the end of their arcs. It's, I, I think it's a kind of a, an impressive combination of uh, satisfaction and lack thereof. It reminds me a lot of um, kind of like, uh, th like third stream, more jazzy records where it, it, it seems like there are all of these small movements that build together in the way that jazz traditionally would. And with jazz, the way that, you know, the standards are structured, they, there's often a collapse at the end, but there, there is an end to this, to the movement. And in third stream stuff uh, that I've listened to, a lot of it is more just kind of cacophonous until it all collapses because of the tension between improvisation and composition. And that's what this last half of this chapter reminds me of a lot. That's a, that's a really good reference. Yeah, point, holy think, shit. <laughs> especially considering how often third stream jazz kind of comes into play in Pinchon's novels. Uh -huh. Um, that's a really good pull, and I had not thought about that, but that's, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent way to describe it. You've had a lot of really great insights into what this book, like, overall represents between that description you just gave and also your your description of this as the, the Odyssey, but, you know, centered on a woman. Um, so thank you for that. And, yeah, I mean, this has been an amazing book to read and, like, uh, the the second half of this chapter there are a lot of really excellent standout moments to it and i i love the way that it 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 builds and separates and and sort of reconstitutes until finally you kind of have this completion to everything with the last scene and especially what the last scene represents from a standpoint of prairie i guess i'll say breaking the cycle um i yeah i mean th I, there were several moments during this chapter that i cried I don't think I would normally cry this much when reading a book, but like the the degree to which we've gotten into these characters and talked about them over the last, you know, what is this like week sixteen or something of the show, um, has has built a real attachment between them and me in my head. I think in a way that is exactly normal, and and it's a big, you know, testament to Pinchon's character writing that he's able to achieve connections like that, um, and especially when in a lot of cases. It's just two characters talking to one another, but he's built such a a weight of history with everybody over the course of the, you know the three hundred pages that this book represents. I mean, when you have Weed and Prairie sitting down at that party, Jesus, and their conversation back and forth, the it is almost as if there is a physical weight that you feel on your shoulders yeah, of yeah. of everything there, and you know, especially when it comes to the reunion between Furnessi and Prairie, just like the the way that Pinchon handles that is so beautiful in not giving us any dialogue. Just like, you don't need to know. You don't need to know what they would say to each other. It doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful conclusion to this book. And like, if I didn't have so many other things to be reading, I'm pretty sure I would have a serious book depression after completing this one. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, this is a, a book hangover situation. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. To the extreme. Um, and 
at the same time, it does also fill me with with a with a god awful rage that uh, this book has the opinions that it has levied at it so often. Yeah. But yeah, I I, I could probably talk just you know single stream of consciousness for the next hour on my own. So I'll I'll cut my thoughts off there <laughs> as we get into the actual details of the chapter itself. Um, we we open up on another you know night in Vineland where the vomitones are playing. Um, and after their show is over, uh, it's Van Meter's house, I believe, that they all go back to. Um, and I, I do, I do love that at the show that they were at previously. You have the note in here coded that says Ralph Waveone Jr. needs to stay far away from comedy. Um, it, that was that was a painful set of jokes to read through. It, that, oh man, <laughs> I. It's so hard to read. Bad comedy is, <laughs> is just something to behold. And it's I think it's a testament to to his writing when we know how funny Pinchon legitimately can be. Yeah. But to be able to write intentionally bad jokes is something that needs to be appreciated. Well, I think I think Ralph's comedic timing is also off. You know, he uses punctuation to kind of show that he's not yeah. confident oh, yeah. enough and that has he's no idea what he's doing. All these He's throwing all these extra words in there, and yeah, it is pretty cringy. His his level of uncomfortability up on stage is palpable. <laughs> I love the line for his big punchline: smiled, sweating, and blue kisses, as if it, as if he'd received an ovation. <laughs> <laughs> like even the narrator is calling this guy out as being yeah. cringy. I do. I, I do have to say though, I do like the the reaction of the two teenagers that. Uh, I think it's described as a barking reaction to his stupid joke. Yeah. Which is just like that, un- <laughs> that really uncomfortable, like shriek of laughter where you almost feel like the silence is going to kill you and you just yeah. have to make a noise. And the, the laugh lasts like half a second and then it's yeah. immediately back to quiet. Yeah. Oh my God. It reminds me of that episode of it's always sunny in Philadelphia where you get to see date D's stand up comedy. Oh God. And it's so terrible. <laughs> Yeah, some some she's like constantly <laughs> throwing up in her mouth, and then when she finally does get a whole joke out, just in the middle of the silence, someone in the back of the room goes, "Jesus Christ!" <laughs> it's it's such a great scene uh, comedically, and I, I agree with you, Cody. It's such a contrasting testament to how funny Pinchon is that that you can easily point out just how trash this particular idea <laughs> of comedy is. Um. So that that does lead to this sort of, as as Luke mentioned it, this this pl- kind of plan to take Zoid's house back by force, um, which it I, it's so funny to me because Zoid isn't the one who even suggests this. Like the the section where Zoid talks about like the love that he has for his house and how he spent, he's realized that like. For the longest time, it was real pain in his ass. But like now that it's gone, and he sees how much like work he put into it is really pretty. But yeah. for that that to be, you know, immediately cut out by Van Meter uh, saying that, or no, it's actually, uh, who is it? it? It's it's Billy Barf, isn't it? Who suggests where they can get the guns from? It's not. I know it's not Zoid who has the suggestion. Um. But yeah, they they plan to go contact a biker gang. Uh, I, think, I think it's just Isaiah two four. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's yeah. who it is, Isaiah two four, because he he knows that he can get these Finnish AK knockoffs that fire twenty twos 
which to imagine them using that weapon against the federal government. It's pellet um, guns. It's yeah, the Cobb and Goldeneye. And I mean, it would, it, they would be deadly weapons, but not against people with body armor. No. That's hilarious. No. <laughs> Just storming this hill with guns that just are completely non-functional. Um and yeah, so that's where we get introduced to the biker gang that they might be able to get these guns from. Which, what a construction um, in one paragraph that Pinchon comes Jesus, up with. Yeah. <laughs> I believe them. I think they exist. After just that paragraph, it's all it took. I believe that there's a secret group of nuns slash bikers. There has to be. I would there imagine so. It's also like something you'd see in like the Hitman games, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The sisters have their headquarters in Walnut Creek, Van Meter twinkled, so no prob. He referred to the Harleyite Order. A male motorcycle club for tax purposes had been reconstituted as a group of nuns. Van Meter had run across them in the course of his quest after the Transcendent, and been immediately surprised and impressed by the spirituality they all seemed to radiate. Taking as their next level the well-known Graffito, if they don't let Harleys into heaven, we'll ride them straight to hell. The sisters pursued lives of exceptional though antiminian purity. They went on as before with all the drug and alcohol abuse, violence symbolic and real, sexual practices upon which Mrs. Gundy had been known to frown, and an unqualified hatred of authority at all levels. But, with every act now transfigured, the vital difference being Jesus, the first biker, according to St. Vince, the Order's <laughs> theologian. And then his only... His only defense for this theory is that that's why they call it motocross. <laughs> Which is gonna be one of the dumbest puns. <laughs> That's like something out some... of the. Yeah, Luke. I forget what the word is, but there's some word for it's named after a guy who, like, in the 1950s, like, constructed whole stories that at the end, like, were just to set up for a pun. But it, it, that has to be one of the weirdest and like most like, because like I don't I don't really see you know, like it is pretty funny and stuff. I don't. It's really I, I I would like to believe that Pynchon constructed that whole thing, this whole digression about the nun biker game just so we could throw in the motocross dude. Oh, thing. I would I believe it. It definitely it's, feels that way, yeah. It's a fucking yeah. Norm McDonald joke. It it does sound like the description of them though does sound like the uh the Monty Python Hell's Grannies sketch. Um, oh sure. Yeah, that was that was what I had in my mind when I was reading. But yeah, it absolutely reads like he had that punchline came into his head before any of that scene came into his head. And he was that, you know, you have to do something with that. Mm -hmm. It's I have to. So have either of you read anything by Christopher Moore? He's this satire uh, novelist. No, I've meant to, but I haven't. Um, He has a he has a book called Lamb. uh, And I believe the secondary title of it is Lamb or the the Testament of Jesus Christ, according to his childhood friend Biff, I think is what the full title of it is. Uh, nice. And it's it's basically, yeah, Jesus's childhood bestie telling the story from the Bible from his perspective. And there's this like long digression, I want to say, in the, the middle third of it, where he talks about how Jesus Christ was also a really good martial artist and he invented judo. And it's this whole long digression for that one pun at the very end of judo. And that is probably the only other place that I've seen a joke <laughs> like this in a book. Because I think Luke has hit the nail on the head that it started as motocross and then just worked back from there. I'm going to yeah, check that book out. 
it's the fur de mil blah 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 kind of thing yeah it, it does feel like a lot of like finchin's entire chapters start off with that kind of premise yeah definitely fair <laughs> what did we think of zoid's lawyer that he goes and speaks to after this <laughs> this meeting of minds dunston dunston practices law we talked about this last <laughs> week it's so absurd there's a few different parts of that section i really love the uh the part where he um let me find it. It was Zoid like wants to pat his head or something. He or wants to, yeah, he the, wants to pat him. He's like fighting the against the stroke Elmhurst's head. Zoid tried to smile. It's just pretty. It's pretty funny reaction to meeting with your lawyer that you want to stroke his head. Yeah. Um, and then I love the whole. Um, I've got worse trouble here than I've ever had, and I'm hearing life is Vegas. And then Elmhurst's eyes moistened and his lips began to tremble. You you mean life isn't Vegas? <laughs> That, so that sad. Made me tear up yeah. laughing. It's, it's so pretty funny. Good. I love that Just, part. I don't know where a chimpanzee lawyer came from, but I, I would I would love to know more about this version of Dunstan and why he's practicing uh, See, constitutional need... violations of power law. This is the spinoff we could have with the uh, the uh, kaiju insurance claims adjuster mm-hmm. and and his attorney Dunstan. And the wacky hijinks that they all get up to. So perfect. We really need to return to that kind of filmmaking. Like Short Circuit. Oh, God, Short Circuit was... (laughs) It's it's great the way that this... (laughs) He is so excited about practicing criminal rico defense law yeah <laughs> like <laughs> it's got a real passion for it and there's a there's a baseline of reason to that because absolutely you know, you know a young up-and-coming attorney uh, rico law would have been something that you would be interested in studying absolutely but the idea of him just being so gung-ho about it is it's like those um I mean, at this point, it, I imagine it has a page on TV tropes. I don't know what it would be called. The, you know, the, like the public defender who just got out of law school, mm-hmm. who's all in, all in on every case, but he's mm-hmm. just incompetent. It's it's like that taken to the next extreme. Yeah, that's a good description of it. So true. Yeah. He's, he's so excited. He's willing to comp the entire thing just so that he can learn what it's going to be like. <laughs> It's a level of exuberance that I don't think I've ever had for any job I've ever had. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's in the face of, what do you mean? Wait, they, growing marijuana? There wasn't anything growing. Yeah, but they said it was growing, so it's definitely yeah. growing. Who's Who are they going to believe? And yet he's still chipper. He's all in. Yeah. Even though I, that's the attitude the losing he has. Fight. The first time, The first time that I read it, I really thought that maybe he was being sarcastic. And then the second time through... I, I, it came more across to me as he just genuinely believes that there's no reason for cops to lie. Like he's, yep. he's, he's just that incompetent about all of this yep. that he's like, well, you definitely, you definitely did. Cause there's no reason a cop would yeah. lie. I said you were. <laughs> That's so good. As a, as a last note on like these two scenes back to back, I do think it's interesting that this is like kind of like an after show, just like hang out at, at um van meter's house and they're probably just like drinking probably smoking like the idea to like do an armed insurrection against the government being suggested by this old hippie as a joke in like, like, with, with his, 
with his friends. I, I think that's like what the intent was. And then you have yeah. Isaiah two four over there, who's just like still so angry as we've covered the like cultural differences in the first chapter. And he's like, well, fuck yeah, I can go get some AK 47s and we can like get this done. Well, that's the thing. I think, I think that's a good point to make because it does highlight the difference between those two generations of you yeah. know, the sixties was all about like big ideas, but little to no follow-up on them. And yep. the eighties was like, fuck yeah, let's do this. Let's go yep. right now. Yeah. It's, it's one of those moments. Cause, cause with what Luke said in his recap of just like, doesn't really make sense for Zoid to try and, you know, do an armed insurrection to get his house back. No, it doesn't. But it does make sense that Isaiah 2-4 be that yeah. into that concept. <laughs> it makes sense for Zoid to talk it out. But that's mm-hmm. going to be the extent of his action. Yeah, absolutely it is. Um, so from there, uh, we figure out about uh, the arrival of Zoid's mother-in-law showing up out of the blue uh, after having quite a road trip over, I guess is the way that I'll put it. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on Tex Wiener or, uh, or Sasha? Or, or Derek, the, the metal-loving Nazi? So I thought that it was possible that he was a skinhead in the like traditional term of skinhead. Um, that, was, that was what my thought was, but it could be just a straight-up Nazi skinhead who likes metal. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. I don't, it's not clearly stated enough, and he doesn't yeah. have enough screen time essentially to make a judgment on it. I mean, he is English, so you know, he's definitely part of the punk scene, and the punk scene definitely did adopt a lot of that, um, right? Um, iconography that the, that the Nazis had in a, in a weird attempt to subvert it all, but not exactly um, successful. Didn't exactly, yeah. Um, and then Tex Wiener is just a fucking great name. <laughs> And I, I love the idea of her, I, you know, I guess fetish for authority extending so far as to include this absurd jumpsuit with racing stripes, flames, and a shoulder patch. <laughs> yeah, he's dressed like reads, evil can evil. <laughs> Tex Wiener Ecole de Pilotage. As though that... oh, it's, it's just so hot. A man <laughs> well... in uniform. Do you want to describe what that means in French for our non-French speaking listeners? Uh, it, it means um, Tex Wiener College of Piloting. <laughs> Which adds to the evil Knievel element, I think, a little bit. <laughs> it really yeah. does. Yeah. Just any uniform. You get a, you get a shoulder patch on there, and, and anyone in the Gates family is going to be <laughs> real into it. <laughs> yeah, at, le- at least you can excuse Derek as a fling. It seems like Sasha and uh, Tex had something going for a while, though. Yeah, she just oh, abandoned sure. him in the middle of the drive over. <laughs> yeah. And then the first person she ran into was a skinhead. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess yeah, underneath a certain light could be a uniform of some kind. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> If we want to go back to SLC punk, there's a line in there about how dressing like a punk is just wearing a different kind of uniform. (laughs) Oh, that's a good good movie. It's a good movie. Everyone should watch SLC punk if they haven't already. Matt Lillard. Good stuff. And um, who was, wasn't uh, one of the American Pie guys in that movie too? Um, Oh, were they? And then also he... Which one did like all the Muppets movies in the mid 2010s? 
Jason Siegel. Wasn't Jason Siegel also uh, in SLC? Jason Siegel wasn't it. Christopher McDonald was in it. I forgot about that. Devin Sawa. Jesus Christ. Yeah. What happened to him? It's a real, it's a real heavy hitters for the nineties uh, right there. Yeah. It is a legitimately good film though. Go if you haven't watched it. it, is. Go watch it. Yeah. Um, so from there we transition to Furnessy's uh, reintroduction to her, her mother. And, the, and we don't know how long it's been, but it seems we can pretty clearly presume that not since she ran away with Brock. Um, what did we think about this scene? I, I, I loved this scene personally. I did too. I, I think the most standout part of it for me, and I, the part that I reread the most was the, the dream that Sasha had. Yeah. Um, I thought that was just a, a beautifully written paragraph that um, was really telling of the relationship between those two mm-hmm. um, with, you know, it, describing uh, Fernessi as a, as a melon that um, I have to go back and look at the actual text here, but um. A certain time each month, just as the full moon, just at the full moon, she would be able, by the terms of the spell, to open her eyes and see the moon, the light, the world. But each time, in some unexplained despair, would only cast her gaze down and to the side, away, and close her eyes again. And for another cycle, she could not be rescued. I think that sentence right there just absolutely encapsulates Bernessi and the cyclical nature of her awful decision making mm-hmm. um, absolutely perfectly. Yeah, agreed. Does anyone else have any thoughts on on for, on that dream? Well, I, it, the whole image of a grandmother on her knees kissing a melon. It when you say it simply, it's it's quite silly. It's absurd, yeah. But it, but it is very peaceful and lovely. It's just nice. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, and I love that they dance almost as if Fernessi from Dancing with Hector. Mm-hmm. Like something within her realizes how pure of a display of emotions that could be or something like that. And so she just, I just love that. I, all of the reunions between these characters that you would assume would have some kind of ill will towards one another yeah. is just the way that Pinchon handles it. Just from a standpoint of, you know, sometimes there are people in your life that like, if you want to be mad at them, you just, lose. and oftentimes that is people that you're, you know, in families with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, so beautiful. Uh, that brings us to the kind of precursor to the Travis Becker reunion. Uh, the Thanatoids are listening to music some more. And this time they're listening to music by the Holocaust Pixel, which the skinhead was here to go see. Um, not building a good case that he's not a racist. <laughs> <laughs> it's subversion, thank you. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, the meatloaf song. I don't, I, there's a lot of songs in this, in this book. I, the meatloaf thing, I sure, whatever. I, I have no, I have no thoughts on this particular song. So, okay. I didn't either at first. And then when I reread it this morning, I, I think I kind of get something. I'm, I, I, there's something I can pull from it. And I think it's the, it's the concept of the, the whole meatloaf thing, uh, uh, you know, these, uh, if we look at it in relation to how the Thanatoids are reacting to it specifically, it's, you know, it, it, this is a a meat that has been put through the grinder, literally speaking, and is essentially a sort of dismissed culinary item. It's It's something that, you know, it's not really made fanfare of. It's just like, here's this thing. 
it's often, especially at this time, it's often like a considered a TV dinner kind of thing. Um, What's wrong with TV dinners? Oh, I didn't say anything was wrong with TV <laughs> dinners. Hungry Man got me through most of college. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but it, you know, there is a lot in the lyrics of it about you know these um, essentially these these vets. If we if we're going to continue on looking at through it, you know, we went to v- we went among the Vietnamese, uh, some souls for to save. Um, and then later on, we fo- uh, well, we followed our dicks just a couple of clicks down the trail to, by the borderline. You know, it's just these these young men that were fed these these lies of you know heroism and and uh, bravura that you know go go over here and and kill these people that aren't really threatening us, but we're going to say they are so that we can do what we need to do with them from a military and governmental standpoint, and then those of you that come back. Good luck with whatever it is you want to do because we're not going to help you anymore. So they they've you know they're they're put through the grinder, they're served up, and are just left to be in front of of a TV for the rest of their lives and and not have any you know valid contribution or or supplementation that can be provided to uh, society anymore. I think that's what I can pull from this, if anything. Huh. But I didn't have a whole lot the first time, but when I read it this morning, that it all kind of click to me there yeah that that's basically everything that i could get out of it i mean it, it, i get a weird kind of unsettling thing coming out of the, these lyrics and mm-hmm. not necess- not just in the sense that oh this is a did they say what genre of song this is melody was rooted in appalachia that's as okay, much as we get you. all right i i just kind of get this this uh, sinister sense about it that that goes far beyond like the 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 baseline kind of interpretation I, I guess baseline that you laid out there Cody um, that there there is like there, there's a there's a slant on this that I think doesn't read right to me because it it isn't just you know people feeling ground down i don't i don't know I'm, i can't get to anything uh mulling it over any any or, thoughts before go, go ahead cody i was gonna say i'd throw that to the to the listeners if anybody knows or has an idea of what that song is is really getting at mm-hmm. i would like to hear those yeah. interpretations yeah you certainly illuminated some stuff there for me that i wasn't fully thinking about um from there we kind of move on to what is potentially my favorite moment of this whole chapter the conversation between weed and and prairie um mm-hmm. I, does anyone else have any thoughts that they want to start with on this because i feel like i could talk for a while i mean it's it, i think this is probably my favorite section of this chapter too yeah um it it is it's a lot of emotions at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I came away like, this is a section that I like when I reread this this morning, I had to set the book down for a little bit just to kind of like process all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's heartbreaking and it's illuminating and it's, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't even know where to start, honestly. Like, yeah, well, it's such a well, and I, I messaged you earlier, Cody, that this part of the book had me crying in a fucking laundromat this morning <laughs> yeah. when I was doing my laundry. Um, it's it's such a perfect way to 
reconcile these two generations of people and the very real trauma that was inflicted from one to the other. Like, the fact that you have... Because Weave's the only person that we get the full context of his karmic debt mm-hmm. that he's owed, right? He's the only one that we go through this whole story with, and we spend 150 pages reading about it and how it, it also set Frenessi on the path that she's at with this book. And it's it's such a heavy karmic debt to be repaid. And the fact that Weed is simply looking to have some kind of love repaid into his life rather than seeking retribution from Frenessi, which we assume he could have gotten at any time, given what happens to to Brock by the end of this chapter. And then instead he focuses on what the daughter of the woman who caused his death can can be to him from a relationship standpoint, from a friendship standpoint. It's It's such a gentle sort of reconciliation that it it's hard not to get heavily emotional after reading it and this this idea that weed could have been reborn as prairie is interesting enough on its own but we can assume that he probably also had an opportunity to be reborn as anything but instead either it's it's unclear what the Thanatoys look like. Like maybe the body he is in is what he was reborn as, but he's still calling himself Weed Atman, or maybe he's some sort of ghostly figure. But the idea that instead of that, instead of being reborn as Prairie or being reborn as another spirit, he just decided to continue on as a Thanatoid and just looks for connection or community or, you know, a different form of reconciliation rather than just getting getting retribution on the people who wronged him. And the ultimate retribution would fucking be that he was reborn as Frenessi's child. <laughs> like yeah. that that would have been huge for his ability to to kind of get those karmic chits back. Um and the way that it all just ends up getting summed up is is incredible. Um yeah, but we'd only shrugged the condition I'm in, not much as a Thanatoid one's reduced to hanging around monitoring the situation, trying to nudge if you don't think it's moving along fast enough, but basically helpless, and if you give in to it, is depressed too. But if I'm the payback, if your account is zeroed at last, now it'll depend a lot upon who you've turned out to be and the karmic chits you've been accumulating. It's a little complicated. Easier since Takeshi computerized, still a danger of collapsing into a single issue, turning into your case, obsessed with those who've wronged you, with their continuing exemption from punishment. Sometimes I lose it, sure, and go out in the night, malevolent, mean, and I find your mom and mess with her. She cries, she gets into fights with her husband. So what, I figure. It isn't even the interest on what she owes me, but lately I've just been letting her be, figuring maybe forget, but never forgive. I dream. Thanatoids dream, though, not always when we think we do. I'm inside a moving train that exists someplace, whether I dream it or not. Because I keep going back to it, joining it on its journey. I'm conscious, laid out horizontal on some bed of ice, attended by two companions who keep trying one stop after another to find a local coroner willing to perform an autopsy on me and reveal to the world at last my murder. My murderers. I can never make out the faces of these other two, though. They come and sit with me now and again. 
It's always cold, always night. If there's a daytime, maybe I sleep through it, I don't know. Out riding on steel too many years, every jurisdiction we come rolling into well notified in advance. Each time men in hats carrying weapons, standing on the platform waving us on, who only want to swear they never saw us. In the face of this devotion of my two remembrancers, town to town, year after year, it's extraordinary. They live on club car coffee, cigarettes, and snack food, play a lot of bid whist, and argue like theologians over Brock's motives in wanting me. You'd have to say iced. It was all for love, says one, and bullshit. The other replies, it was political. A rebel cop with his own deeply personal agenda, only following the orders of a repressive regime based on death, and so forth. I hear them late in rhythmic dark hours, the last of my honor guard, faithful to the last depot, and the last turn down. And then the fact that he goes on to talk about his parents, like just after that, mm-hmm. and how they're, how, <sighs> especially with Zoid as like a, a image bearer of the death and destruction that the government has caused, either through these counter-revolutionary struggles or through the war in Vietnam, or through, you know, any number of apparatus with which an imperialistic hegemonic superpower like America can, can do this damage. Him just feeling debted to the few people who remember him and who are seeking justice is such a hard thing, I think, for the average person to internalize. But Pinchon has clearly done the work here to set up what that would feel like because we know how unjust that would be for him in the situation that led to his death. And that makes you wonder what happened to all the other Thanatoids. And that really makes you wonder, you know, this is stuff that happened in real life. People died in Vietnam. People were killed by the government. We've talked about it on the show. You know, uh, are we doing our part to make sure that there's more than two people who stand watched by his corpse looking for justice? Or yeah. is it far more convenient for us to, to be like the people at all these different train depots who just try to hurry them along and forget they ever saw them? It's just such an amazing way to wrap up that storyline with him, but also to put it on the reader to consider the real-world implications of these things, if you've been doing a real, a real close reading of it like we have, and also just to, to, to showcase that while this, this is somewhat absurd of a novel, like things that happen are crazy and they have you know, that zany humor in it, it's not fully disconnected from real life. Yeah. And, well, and I think it, it's also foreshadowing a little bit what's coming in a few pages here and, and not to get too far ahead of where we are now, but I, I do think this is a good time to mention this, that um, this ties into what Hub tells Frenessi as he's leaving her. Oh yeah. Um, and it, on page 370 where he says that it, the, just before the end of the paragraph, it says she called after him, but he wouldn't turn only went on at the same laden crawl answering, but denying her his face. Take care, young gaffer, take care of your dead or they'll take care. They'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, that's the a perfect kind of cap to what you were just talking about with with this, and I, I think this is a really interesting way that Pinchon is playing with the concept of the Bardo, where you know Weed even mentions that you know there's a time limit to to find another body, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's like seven days or something like that. I think it comes back up with with Brock later too, mm-hmm. um, but the fact that he's stayed by his own choice is is a really interesting and telling and i I think 
you know, if if we kind of zoom out on this on this scene, it's more than just a conversation between um weed and and prairie. It's you know, a conversation, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of your your uh, discussion on this, it, it's a conversation between two different generations and these two generations mm-hmm. that we've been in, in conversation with throughout this whole book where you know weed is is recognizing the the faults that his his generation made and and that he made um and he seems to kind of have an obligation of of writing that or or maybe feels that by by coming back and and by taking a new body he would be doing it a disservice and not allowing you know the next generation to truly have their own voice and their own um their own way of, of guiding their own future. And, and, you know, it's kind of a parental thing of, you know, you, you try to let your kids learn from the mistakes that you made, but also make their own mistakes and, and learn from those as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this, this, you know, that whole section you read out is, is absolutely beautiful. I, I'd like to just kind of close that out by um, reading the, the kind of last moment that they have together almost where it says, uh, he looked so forlorn that by reflex, she took his hand. He flinched at her touch, and she was surprised not at the coldness of the hand, but at how light it was, nearly weightless. Would you mind if I came and visited now and then, you know, at night? And then it goes on a little bit longer. I don't want to read that whole thing, but it, that's, it's such a beautiful kind of final moment between the two. And that's the part that really killed me, was that, that part right there, mm-hmm. when she felt his hand and just... The oh, emptiness God. that was there is fucking harsh. It, it's so... It's this is one of my favorite Pinchon scenes in any of his books, bar yeah. Like this absolutely beautiful writing, and it does so much in in just a few pages. It's it's insane. Yeah, and just that like simple offer. I'm just like, is it okay if I come see you? Yeah. Oh Jesus, I'm crying again. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully this will help. Bar- barreling past all this. All this frivolous character work. <laughs> Let's talk about the metaphysics of thanatoids. Um, I, I find this conversation really strange because throughout this book, we've gotten a very fragmentary and kind of, kind of mosaic uh, definition of what a, what a thanatoid is from various characters' perspectives, from Weedotman, from you know, Fernese being on the edge of it, kind of in the near the middle of the book, to uh-huh. various characters. We we get all these different perspectives. And what we have at the very beginning is this weird moment of Weed Atman actually kind of being aware of it himself and saying, you know, I just didn't get my shit together and decide in time. And then the window closed and I was stuck here. And that's like you like you said, Cody, it, it's a decision of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's an interesting wrinkle because what that what that then makes me worry or not worry really but con- con- consider is the fact that this whole time we've had this this justification of karmic imbalance and of course from Weed's perspective and from many of the Thanatoids if not all of their perspectives it may be that their karmic imbalance is the reason why they're spending so much time in the bardo and not actually deciding where they're going to be reincarnated. Um, but that doesn't mean that settling the karmic balance is going to fix anything. 
And I think that's kind of what Atman's getting to with his discussion of the the door at the top of the staircase disappearing. Is oh, him, yeah. Is his realization that there is no source of the suffering in, 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 the, in the Buddhist sense. Life is suffering. This stuff happens. There is no root to it. The only thing that you can do is get rid of your attachment to the pleasure so that the suffering doesn't get worse. And he's finally come to that conclusion, but he's still stuck here as um, I think I feel like one of you mentioned it. Uh, maybe not. But if you if you've read through like the the Pynchon wiki, you've definitely seen reference to the idea of a hungry ghost. And that's exactly what the Thanatoids are, especially framed this way, is a spirit that was human or some other spirit that was um, going through life and was so wronged or has wronged the world or themselves in such a way that they are cursed to spend an indeterminate amount of time left on Earth, just in some cases eating, in some cases wailing, in some cases doing various uh, epitomes of their of, of their uh you know injustices whether they've done them or it's been done to them and here we have a hungry ghost who's still there despite having come to the conclusion of the lesson he had to learn and so is this hopeful is this weed atman being so wronged being so left behind and being so neglected even by himself in the bardo is this him coming to his senses realizing the the sources of his pain and being able to transcend them even as this cursed spirit or is this just somebody who's trapped yeah i i, I think i came away with the interpretation that he understands that there's no there's no central source to it like the buddhist perspective and that quote about the, the the stairway and how there's really there's no light beyond it. It's just sort of just sort of how these things are, um, is is another part of it that that really emotionally affected me through this whole portion. And I think you've explained it in a way that I I can't really add anything else to. You did a great job. Uh, do we have anything else that we wanted to mention between Fernesi or I'm sorry Prairie and uh, Weed before we move on to Fernesi and Prairie's reunion? Well, I just wanted to see what y'all, how, how y'all interpreted the, uh, in fact, they were soon to become an item around Shade Creek. Um, is it just they're walking around talking a lot? Because that's, that's really all the uh, specifics we get, which, you know, I think in some cases people would call that an item. Yeah, I think that it's sort of like how you, you might see the same, like, granddaughter spending time with their grandfather or yeah. like the same person who like goes and visits old people at like an old folks home. Like a ghost that's, world situation. Yeah, that's sort of the way that I took it. It's just item in the sense that it wasn't uncommon for you to see one with the other rather than it, it being anything more than that. The secrets of Pachinko are a, a very much kind of the, the thing that you would share between generations in that yeah. sort of a relationship. So I think you're right. It's just mm -hmm. a... A strange way to put it, given the the sandwiching context. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. So, what did what did we think of uh, the eventual? First of all, another great example of Pinchon being able to. God damn, did that description of them doing barbecue 
with the squirt guns of barbecue sauce. And carving up meat with a chainsaw? Yeah, that just makes me want to <laughs> have some. Like, holy cow. Yeah. Um, I think Pinchon really likes barbecue, because there's two barbecue references in this book. Yeah, well, he, I don't know. It, it seems as though he only likes to comment on likes. <laughs> Which potentially includes pizza, unfortunately. But... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely delicious uh, description. And that, that begins sort of the reunion we have for Nessie and Prairie eventually actually meeting one another. What, mm-hmm. did we, what did we think about this section? I think Luke mentioned at the beginning, you didn't, you didn't like it? or you, I don't, Maybe I'm misquoting you there, but it seemed like you weren't really as, as receptive of it as... Um, I, I, know I, kinda, I guess I was kind of confused why, why, the, why Sasha dominates this scene. Um, it does seem like Sasha kind of infantilizes infantilizes Prairie, and it didn't. I don't know how it didn't necessarily read as super characteristic, but for Sasha to infantilize Prairie, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not like opposed to this scene. I just kind of felt like it 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 um it was just kind of odd to me. I th- I think yeah, I I see where you're coming from. Um, especially with her, you know, like pinching her cheeks and trying to get her, goad her into singing the Gilligan's Island theme song. <laughs> I think it's an icebreaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a way of, of um, smoothing out a potentially really fraught reunion by making absurd gestures and, and making herself a spectacle that the both that both Prairie and Frenessi can agree like Grandma's a lot, and it's it's a sort of a way I think of her easing the two of them into reconnecting rather than you know letting i think if they were just to reconnect on their own and like have that moment of like prairie and and Frenessi see each other there's too much opportunity in sasha's eyes for that to go real south real fast and have one of the two of them or both of them blow up at each other and just start immediately yelling at each other i think by jumping in and, and doing what she does it's allowing them an opportunity to diffuse the tension almost immediately and then set a, a better tone for their reunion. Yeah, I think it really comes across as nervous relative introducing two people that she knows could have every reason to scream at one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and is just trying as hard as she possibly can to the point of absurdity to smooth that over, um, to avoid the embarrassment or the, the potential sort of negative consequences of it is really how that reads to me. Yeah, and even even beyond like any intentional diffusal, I, I see it a lot as this is this is a grandmother who hasn't really gotten the opportunity to play that role. Like yeah. the, the whole time that she's been, you know, helping to raise Prairie, she's hasn't had a, her daughter there to to be the person to get mad at her for spoiling her child. You know, that that not to say necessarily again that oh it's the character following the social script for the sake of following the social script. But I think in this case, it is the avenue by which we're getting the diffusal. It's, 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 she's just so genuinely happy to have her daughter back in her life and so genuinely happy to have Prairie, you know, so far safe again, back with her. And it's just such a happy moment that she's just going full grandma, full adoring parent of a parent mm-hmm. yeah it's a very yeah. 
very well written grandma description because it's I have so accurate. It's that's my grandma, and that's yep. my mother in law when she's around my kids. Like it's yep. it's just that 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 overwhelming joy and 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 love that kind of comes pouring out in weird ways sometimes when you're a grandparent. My my mom's side of the family had two reunions four years apart from one another, and then they all collectively said, this is too hard to plan. We're not doing it again. And when I went to the first one, and basically the second one, I was greeted by a bunch of older women like this, who were like, the last time I saw you, yeah, hey. and then they just exaggerated, put their hand close to the floor. And it, it's just, it's the exact same thing. Like, th- this, is, this is a person that Pinchon knows deeply and has decided to put her into a book very very clearly and it it might even be on a a kind of a more psychoanalytic read of the scene you know it might be an indication of the last time that uh sasha saw frenesi it's very straightforward like reversion kind of thing very true yeah um does someone want to read out or do we have any thoughts on that before as far as like the I kind of already said it in the beginning, but as far as the fact that we don't get any direct dialogue between the two of them, I think that that's a great choice made yes. by my pinch on. I, I, I don't think he could write anything there that would somehow match expectations or, you know, deliver what it is that the, the reader may be hoping would be delivered there. And that instead, yeah. this is a private conversation between a mom and her daughter, and it, it, it's not necessary for you to know what's said. It's, yeah, it's like the I, ending of Lost in Translation. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what I was about to say. It's it's a moment that we as the audience do not have the right to intrude on. It's between mm-hmm. those characters and it needs to remain that way. And I think you can you can make whatever you want it to be in your mind. Um I think Pinchon did us all a service by by not letting us see that that conversation. Yeah, and especially getting to the like the the part about, you know, there being potential anger or anything like that. I think it's also telling that later in the book, I don't remember the exact page, but where it says that no matter how much Fernesi and Prairie talked, the the anger that was supposedly earned or the anger that it was supposedly sort of justified from Prairie just never just never came out. Yeah. And and I think that that shows an illustration of just like e- even though Prairie has has wondered what would happen if she would have been aborted, and has wondered what would happen, you know, of of all these other negative potential implications she's it's still her mom it's still her mom and it's that's somewhat of an inversion of the relationship between shay and her mom of Mm -hmm. her her mom always comes down to bail her out of jail no matter what and in this case it's it's the the exact opposite where it's coming from the daughter her mom can abandon her and run away with men who don't deserve and all of that and still uh still her mom she can't she can't get over the fact that it's still her mom and there's a quote in here that i love uh 367 where it says outside the trailer with sasha was a woman about 40 who had been a girl in a movie and behind its cameras and lights heavier than prairie expected sun damage in her face here and there much hair much shorter and to the cognizant eye drastically in need of a styling moose though how prairie could bring the subject up wasn't clear to her I love this this quote because it's also at this point that Pinchon not just shows to to Prairie but also to the reader. Fernessi's just a woman. She's yep. just a middle aged woman who looks like an average middle aged woman, and and that's all she is. 
she's been seen as this sort of like avatar of you know voracious sexual appetite from from men she's been seen as this this massive figure that looms over a lot of people's lives that was part of the counterculture movement that represents you know betrayal and all of that we have such these these huge big feelings about her through most of the book and then as soon as these two principal characters meet one another you realize that it's it's just somebody's mom that's all she is and even though you know she made mistakes and even though things went wrong in the past that doesn't change the fact that she is not anything more than just a just a regular woman and i love that it comes underneath the gaze of prairie because going back to the first half of the chapter when prairie and jay meet one another it describes this sort of like sizing up they do of each other to see if you know anyone's lost weight or gained weight or you know who might look better than the other person and here it's prairie doing at the same time and whereas with shay it was a sort of have we changed at all back and forth this kind of concern have we changed here prairie's doing the exact same visual sort of inspection to realize that it it, whatever expectation she had it it's not there it's she's that's just that's just just a middle-aged woman that's all it is and she's no different than any other so i yeah and i completely agree that the importance of that passage because i think a lot of the reason that it's not dissatisfying that we don't see any real communication between Fernesi and prairie beyond you know a little bit of mutual dismissal of sasha is is where we see kind of a flip side of the 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 dangers of mediation that we've been talked about throughout that have been talked about throughout this book, whether we're talking about the Thanatoids or whatever, um, you, we see them bonding through, you know, Prairie talking to Justin for the first time. We see them bonding through Zoid and Flash, uh, bonding in the what seems like the the most minimal way they will. Um, through the through the interactions with Sasha, we see the way that they come to to finally know each other through these other relationships because there is like like you both said there is no way to make the actual conversation satisfying what pension can give us instead though is these beautiful moments that show that there is a connection between them and to to not even give frenesi her name in the moment where she is introduced to this scene is um you know, it's it is so deflationary given that she has been the subject of conversation. She mm-hmm. and Brock have been the subjects of conversation. And to have Prairie not even consider her as her, just as the person who she actually is in that moment. And then to have all of that tension loom overhead in these wonderfully sweet conversations between Fernesi and Hub. Justin and Prairie, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's masterful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely is. And also, by the way, a lot of you laughed at me over saying there's a reading where Prairie is Brock's child. Um, after reading through the second half of chapter 15, just saying, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of potential evidence there, including Brock himself, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Um, yeah, does someone want to read out the Emerson quote? Because I think it's important for us to include that in particular. I think it is vitally important to this yeah. whole book, yep. especially certain characters. Um, I have it right here. Um, and I'll, I'll back up a little bit and kind of set the, the scene here. 
just to kind of start in the middle of this because this is a long ass sentence. Um, Jess and Eula sat together, each year smaller and more transparent, waiting for Jess's annual reading of a passage from Emerson he'd found and memorized years ago, quoted in a jailhouse copy of The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Frail as the Vogue of, of Vineland, in his carrying, pure voice, Jess reminded them, secret retributions are always restoring the level, when disturbed, of the divine justice. It is impossible to tilt the beam. All the tyrants and proprietors and monopolists of the world in vain set their shoulders to heave the bar, settles forevermore the ponderous equator to its line, and man and moat, and star and sun, must range to it, or be pulverized by the recoil. Who wants to take their response to that uh, hat as the first person? I'll just say, I, I think that that quote, that particular line, mm-hmm. um, as, as I said right before I read it, it like really, I, I think you could hinge a lot of the thematics of this book on that line. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it speaks to, and, and Jess even follows it up later when he talks about how, you know, look at what happened to uh, Bud Scantling you know, uh, when he didn't essentially heed this warning, like it's, it's prophetic in almost any time. I, I think you can really point that at, at any time and, and you know, look at examples of when this has happened. And, you know, these people who, um, you know, fail to, to realize the, the reckoning that can come with, with the power that they might have at any given moment and the, and the way they choose to wield that power. Um, it's uh, yeah, that's a, it's a stunning, a stunning pull of a line. I absolutely love its inclusion in here. Yeah, I think so too. Will, I think you were about to say something too. I was going to jokingly say three words, Mason and Dixon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because really I don't, I don't have any conclusions to draw from the, the parallels between this quote and the thematic substance of that book that we just did. Mm hmm. Um, but I, I think that, I mean, it's telling that it is, it is Ann Emerson. It's telling <laughs> that it's talking about using the line as this fulcrum, using a line in this context, but using the line in, in the book, in the other books context. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it, to, to what Cody said is that it's, it's not just important to Vineland as a book, but I think it's important to Pinchon's canon as a whole. Yeah, in the sense that he writes about these forces and counterforces all the time, like it's a huge part of this book. Certainly, from a historical context, it's a massive part of Inherent Vice. It's it's you know as we talked about in a lot of cases, he writes about these very pivotal moments in history where things are changing and where the new sort of paradigms are shifting, and often with that, that's being pushed forward by sort of an evil governmental force or an evil sort of capital T they whatever that may be. But there's always something else that can come out of that that can fight back against it and sort of rebalance these scales of justice, which, of course, gets back to the conversation between Weed and Prairie just a couple pages ago, in that you have this this great evil force of the government in the 70s and 80s cracking down on the PR3, cracking down on drugs, all the stuff we've been reading about. And yet, what is ultimately the closest that Weed gets to any kind of cosmic justice for what he does? It's just the actions of little girl who want to be there for him and want to you know wants to help him recover from that and so you have that little bit that little bit of balancing until the next thing comes along and and creates something else I, i think that in particular that concept is present across all of pinchon's work personally 
It definitely is. And uh, and Mason and Dixon, yeah, that's a that's a great example of it as well. And and it it's huge and against the day. It's it's big and bleeding edge. It's it's. I'm trying to think if it does that really come into play in V. Maybe not as much. Uh, the the. Just the idea of a fulcrum is such an important part of V. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. Given what the letter V looks like. Hey, no. Don't spoil the <laughs> future discussions. No. Well, we can't cover that book now. It's all over. <laughs> Look, people talk a lot about Pynchon's books being a little too long. But thankfully, I do think V has a little bit more to it. Yeah, it I does. think so too. It does. Much like Vineland, I think a lot of people just go, ah, oh, this is his first one. It's and unfairly that, maligned in its yeah. own ways, yes. Yeah. It just means 30, you know? That's all yeah. it means. That's all it means. <laughs> so that does bring us to the, the next dream sequence. A lot of them in the chapter. Yeah. Um, this one coming from Hub Gates, and I think it's also telling that we have savoring the last of light before... Um, Dark comes along, especially in light of the quote that we just read, um, as far as what he's physically doing there. And then, of course, we have the later reference of the, the pre-fascist twilight uh, that comes up later. And I think that really speaks a lot to, to potentially thematically what Hub is doing in his dream. But um, what do we think of this chapter, or this section of the chapter? We already kind of talked about the last quote in relation to weed, but does anyone have any further ideas about Hub's dream? Also, it, I think it's Frenesi's dream. It is, yeah. Oh, well, the dream with Hub in it. Um, I, I think it's... I mean, I, I, I see it a lot as just kind of the, the, the point of the conversation. The reason that we don't actually get a conversation between Hub and Frenesi is that this dream sums it all up. She doesn't want to leave him behind. She doesn't want to leave any of these people behind. She's just felt like, oh, they're dead. They can't, I can't do anything about it. I can't spend time with them. They're dead to me, even if it's not because they wronged her or that she necessarily wronged them so badly. It's just that I've moved past that. It can't happen. And here we have the exact opposite happening. Mm. I have nothing to add to that. Does anyone else? don't either other than i i love again the prose in in the dream all the description of of the lights the arc lights and the the white hot death cold spill it's just it's so beautiful all of these dream sequences are just so so well done um i really want to see the version of star trek that he describes just after the stream say jim yeah like (laughs) (laughs) yeah i love this justin found his father and zoid which i love that i love that zoid and flash are just casually hanging out um in the back of a pickup watching say jim a half hour sitcom based on star trek in which all the actors were black except for the communications officer a freckle white redhead named lieutenant o'hara whenever spock came on the bridge everybody made the vulcan hand salute and went around high th- <laughs> about, the time, about the time the show ended prairie came by zoid and flash went off looking for beer and she and justin settled down semi-brother and sister in front of the eight o'clock movie peewee herman and the robert musel story um yeah, you that, have to read the description of that movie though because it's so good <laughs> it was mostly peewee talking in a foreign accent 
or sitting around in front of some pieces of paper with some weird looking marker pen and the kids attention kept wandering to each other. (laughs) (laughs) I also I also love the follow up of Magnificent Disaster, a TV movie about the 83 NBA. Oh, man. 83 and 84 NBA playoffs, which wasn't that just back in the summer? Pretty quick move. So to give some background on that for anyone who doesn't know, um, <laughs> there was it was in the it's weird. It's, like, this is one of those weird. Uh, it, I say this as a as a big basketball fan. Like this is one of those weird mistakes in here. Um, there would not have been an eighty three eighty four NBA playoffs because the this is referring to the nineteen eighty four finals uh, specifically. There was a game between so the finals between the the Lakers and the Celtics. One of those games. I think it was game three or four, um, maybe even five. I don't remember. It's one of the mid or later games. Um, the The AC went out in Boston Garden, and so it got up to like 97 or something like that. It, it was eclipsed. I, I know this because in 2014, uh, when the Spurs won the finals, same thing happened here. Game one of our series against Miami, the AC went out, and it got hotter than it did in Boston that time. And oh. All of the players from Europe and from South America, I guess, I mean, I don't understand. It's not a big deal. This is how we play all the time. Um, but that's what it's referring to. It's it, the basically like a lot of the players ended up on oxygen tanks and, and had extreme cramps because they weren't used to playing in that kind of uh, condition. It also gives me the vibe that Pinchon does not like Boston. <laughs> yeah, I kind of get that feeling. Wonder, too. <laughs> wonder why. Why would you have that idea? With the follow-up that he has later describing the next part of the movie where they all just start, like, swearing at one another. and Yeah. Yeah, so it's so <laughs> funny. And it's like, even, even, you know, their mothers would be ashamed of them if their mothers weren't also sitting next to them <laughs> engaging in the same profanity. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, <sighs> I, that's so good. I'm glad that there's a real-life context. It's really funny. Yeah, th- thank you for that, because it... it very very illuminating it's one that's one of those bizarre things that i as a sports fan just have held on to for a long time i think probably just because <laughs> i experienced it when when the spurs had to deal with it and i also just love the inclusion of of her wanting to babysit her her little brother like yeah it's so sweet. so sweet yeah it is that in, it involves a little tickling line um just so good uh you gotta love the the movie's getting quicker over the years joke, which is yeah. the, the joke is just that movie, movies have gotten more fast paced. But this time, this time, they mean it's faster to make. Well, and, that, and I mean, that also gets back to like how quickly the, the movie's getting shoved on the pipeline that Hector's making just because it's commenting on Reagan era politics, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have any thoughts on the conversation between Flash and... Uh, and Zoid, I found this one an interesting inclusion, and I do love that it begins with with Zoid like trying to make him feel comfortable by walking over. And, oh, political family, huh? <laughs> like, yeah, for sure. All I've really got is that I I find it interesting how Zoid he still like we like we saw at the beginning of the book he still hasn't given up on the movement, whatever that means in his mind at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, as mentioned at the beginning of this family reunion, you know. He's shaved the beard. He's a lot more tidier looking. And he's got, as we see in this scene, a lot more self-control because you really don't get the sense that he would have been able to 
keep up. I don't, I don't, like, they're getting along. I don't think Zoid likes him at all. I mean, really, when you say that he's, I can't find the exact quote, but he calls him, like, the epitome of a fascist or something. He does, yeah. Yeah. And you get the sense that younger Zoid would not have been able to play nice with somebody he felt that way about. And maybe he doesn't want to spend a lot of time with Flash, but, you know, he's having this conversation, they're getting along, they're learning more about each other, and they're learning more about this woman who was such an important part of both their lives. Yeah. Oh, and he, he like, goes so far as comforting him, even though in the, in the narration he's called him a, a, like, perfect sociopath or psychopath or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I think it just goes to show that, like, even on a human level, you can still hate somebody, but if you have that bond of shared trauma feels like too strong of a word, but like shared relationship issues, maybe like that can still at least be like, well, yeah, fuck that guy. I hate his position in life, but I can at least sympathize the fact that both got, you know, kind of screwed over by the same woman. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that there's about to be some emotional resonance Wade and his opinion of Fernesi. And then all of a sudden Isaiah two back in, like he just finished snorting canes. He's like, so here's an update on the assault. Go for the house, like just completely just kills the moment for these two, and is also talking about this in front of a cop, like yeah. in in front of a law enforcement <laughs> officer for the federal government. But that's that. I mean, that's that '80s punk attitude. Just like, yeah. I don't give a shit. Like, what are you gonna do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, he probably wrote the song we saw earlier, "Cop." Oh, I'm sure he did. Oh yeah, <laughs> real artistry. <laughs> I mean, hey, that song could in another world beyond uh, a mothers of invention record. I mean, it was described as a three note blues song. So yeah, I could absolutely see that being on a mother's of invention record. I enjoyed that song. <laughs> um, and then we learn that the reason they can't get the guns and the reason why subsequently this half baked idea supported by only one of them is going to fall apart is that the, the the bikers have become a a media sensation and are now just selling <laughs> merchandise for their own organization <laughs> rather than doing any kind of crimes. They sold out real fast. <laughs> Which, if that isn't if that if that isn't just a a comedic commentary on stuff in this book as a whole of just like yeah, sold it out for money or sold it out for yeah. fame, even though it's about something patently absurd. I don't know what would be. They went full kiss like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Real fast. They did. That's such a good band to pick to to use a, an analog. His fans are crazy people. I can't. Uh, I could go the on. The music's on not even good. It's not. Thank you. Like, it's, it's not good. <laughs> um, getting back to the book, I say you have this this code in here uh, where. He says Zoid is not the dude as evidenced by his love of the Eagles. Yeah, true. Look, does, you know, like the I hate the Eagles. I hated the Eagles before <laughs> Big Lebowski. I can't I can't stand them. I really can't. Oh, my God. Um, To backtrack a little bit, does someone want to read the quote about uh, Zoid's generation that Isaiah throws out? Sure. Whole problem with you folks generation, Isaiah opined. Nothing personal. If you believed in your revolution, put your lives right out there for it. But you, sh- but you sure didn't understand much about the tube. Minus the minute the tube got a hold of you folks, that was it. That whole alternative America, El Dedo Mito, just like the Indians. Sold it all to your real and 
you're real enemies. And even $1970, it was way too cheap. Yeah, I, I think, A, that's just an interesting interesting quote for, for Pinchon to include there. But I also wanted to use it kind of as a segue to ask your guys' opinion on, on how Pinchon uses television in this narrative. What are your thoughts on, on television as it's conceptually related to this book now that we're in the last chapter? Well, I mean, we've, we've talked endlessly throughout this, uh, this book discussion about not just how this book is structured in a, in a sort of TV kind of manner, but how it is also playing with the impact that TV had um, on, on society. And, and again, this goes back to what we talked about uh, with, with Mason and Dixon. We talked about, you mentioned earlier, Kate, about Pinchon is almost always setting his stories in these, these times of a, of a shifting zeitgeist. And in the 60s is when you had the ubiquity of television finally kind of coming full force. Like at that point, that was kind of the turning point when almost every house in America had a TV. Prior to that, it was still some, somewhat of an expensive thing and, and really, you know, a lot of middle and lower class families couldn't really afford to have one. By the 60s, they had gotten cheaper. Not only that, but you, that's when you really started having um, live news becoming a thing. And the the programming had shifted in in such a way that it wasn't really just these wholesome um, you know family stories like Leave It to Beaver and and the Andy Griffith Show and all that. They were starting to take a little bit more chances in their in their storytelling. And then in the eighties, you had um, you know, kind of almost like a, a a redux of the same thing, like. TV was even more, you know, we went from just every family having a TV in their house to now we have like two TVs in every house or, you know, the kids have a TV in their room and the parents have a TV in their room and there's a TV in the living room. There was a screen somewhere always on and it had become more of a, a driving force. Like more people were using TV to escape, you know, their day to day to come home. And, you know, that was their way of like, of de-stressing was you would just come home and put on the, you know, whatever show was, was your thing. And, and again, you, this is where, you know, again, more shows were kind of starting to take chances, but at the same time we were seeing the influence of, of government starting to come in and, and kind of put itself into a lot of these shows. You, when you had these PSAs that were really prevalent, um, you know, all the, all the anti-drug stuff that was cropping up on there and, and the government realized like, Hey, we can use this as a really, powerful tool to send whatever message we want and we can manipulate how people are interpreting what's happening in such a way that you know we're always in control of that narrative so we can demonize you know we we can demonize whatever we want and we can you know we can do this and that and at the same time i i think in spite of all of that i i do think pinchon sees that there is a an inherent sort of um I don't want to say evil, but TV can be a really, really powerful distraction for the people mm -hmm. who want it to be that. However, it also, it, there can be genuinely good stories told in that medium. Um, and I, I think that may be part of the reason that this book is kind of structured in that way. Um, but I, I think overall, what he's getting at with this book specifically is that we as a as a culture as a society at this point in in the 80s and in the 60s too had had really come to the point where 
we were almost dependent on TV. And I think that's what the whole Hector subplot was, you know, was this, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of silly to look at, at, you know, this guy's getting addicted to the to TV, but that kind of thing genuinely was happening. Like you would have, you know, parents that would just, that was it. They would just come, you know, either they were stuck in front of the TV and their kids were off doing whatever and they had no idea, or it was just put the kids in front of the TV so we don't have to worry about them. And the TV can kind of take care of all that. Um, so it was this, it's this really interesting um, medium that is grossly misused way too often um, that has the potential to do some really good stuff. Like just like, you know, they you know, film can tell great stories. TV can tell great stories. Some of my favorite narrative stories are TV shows. Um, but at the same time, you, I mean, look at where TV is now with, you know, now that it's expanded into streaming and all that, like the amount of, of content that is out there and how much of it is quantifiably good uh, or is even telling a story at this point, you know, um, it's, it's a really interesting evolution that, that, that has gone on. And, and I think it's impact and it's, it's drive driving force in, in our society um, is really a major part of what this book is looking at. Yeah, I agree. Does any Luke will, do you have any thoughts to add to that? I think it's interesting that you could substitute TV for drugs in this quote and kind of in general. Mm-hmm. Like once once drugs got a hold of your generation, everything was over. Um, you know, it does it does seem to be a commentary on addiction and the ways that we escape from reality. Mm-hmm. Um which I find interesting and kind of um I don't know. I mean it would have been you know, pension probably has a different perspective on television than uh, the you know me and the other co-hosts. Given that he was alive, he I think I don't think that television was a thing in the 1930s. I could be wrong. I'm not exactly. I'm not an expert on the history of television. Um, but I think we can be pretty sure that pension grew up without the television, and then kind of like people maybe five, ten years older than me. It's like them and the internet, where they they remember a world without the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can I don't I can kind of remember before the internet was widespread at least, um. But yeah, I, I I that's basically all I have to say is that it's you know it's it seems to be kind of um. Uh, easy views television as a sort of drug. Yeah, and I mean both drugs and television can be numbing agents, obviously, which which we see time and time again. I mean, the thanatoids use it as a numbing agent. Um, Hector certainly uses it in the same way that he does drugs. The, the way that Takeshi uses drugs, perhaps, would be a better uh, analog. And you know that this it it is something that is used to also numb the masses. It's bred in circus. It's you know, it's something that if you create entertainment, you can distract people from the real thing that's going on. I mean, at at the heart of this book is the production of a film about the horrific events that we read, not for the purpose of illuminating the evils of the government purpose of illuminating the evils of drug usage um you know li- literally taking negative history to to use the the phrase from mason and dixon and turning it into something to be consumed for entertainment and also support that same government's message i think that you're you're certainly on track there with the the comparison between the two of them and it kind of builds towards i guess like a reading of this book as the film that H- Hector's making. Because Hector 
disappears from the narrative after Furnessy sort of arrives and she's presumably kind of directing the film. And it, it, it seems to be, at least to my mind, there's a reading that's possible where this book is, is another layer to that, to that piece of that puzzle that, you know, Hector is, is viewing the creation aspect of his film as a central portion, as a central part of the frenesy gate story. And so therefore us reading Vineland is engaging in that film that he has presumably made. And I think that builds to why there are so many similarities between this and television or between this and movies from a standpoint of how tropes are built out from a standpoint of how, you know, seemingly very cinematic. And there's this weird sort of secondary narrator almost, I think in another episode, I compared it to like someone you're on a couch with watching a movie or watching a TV show with. Um, and so that gets me to like my like big idea from this chapter is that that it, it is enga- it, it, it is engaging in another level of of sort of I suppose metafiction, but built within the universe that the book is out of, which is a fascinating thing to to think about to me. I agree. I I, I that 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 kind of reminds me of this this thing that I keep bringing back, keep shoehorning into the discussions of kind of the ideas of we know Pynchon, he didn't grow up with television, absolutely. You know, he was at least 10 or so before it would have been widespread, even if he had access to it when he was younger. There wouldn't there wouldn't have been television for him, though. It would have been like news broadcasts at most, just like Walter Cronkite. (laughs) Not even right. I mean, no, yeah, yeah. Um, but so, but what he did have once he reached, you know, adolescence at least was like Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies yep. and those Hanna-Barbera cartoons and stuff like that. And we know through both things that Pynchon has unironically stated as, as himself, not even couched in a character or a narrator that he loves those cartoons. Mm-hmm. But what he doesn't love, and what I think a lot of this book is attacking, is the facsimile of realism that those 50s and early 60s cartoons mm. were made out of. And I, 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 I proffer this question, not because I actually think that it's too fruitful in this book in particular, but I think <laughs> in the context of these larger social discussions that we've had... Um, uh, particularly pertaining to like David Foster Wallace is what does the Carol Burnett show have to do with all of this? <laughs> I, I especially think of, uh, you know, her, her, um, what brain, come on, her Shirley Temple bits and how that plays into other pension writing. Mm-hmm. Any, but that that's all I can really say there is. I think there, there's a lot of, this inherent irony in the very early stuff made for children that and families that Pynchon didn't necessarily grow up with, but grew up into mm-hmm. with like, you know, the Looney Tunes were so much pastiche, so much uh, sincere human joy all mixed together. And then you have like, you know, leave it to beaver type things, the Dick Van Dyke <laughs> show, which are fine. You know, if you love them, if they've got a spot in your heart, I'm not, I'm not here to, to shit on them, but they are really absurdly saccharine and really represent life as something that's impossible for anyone to attain, mm-hmm. let alone 
not, not yeah. even the people that like oh back in the 50s you know white families had homes and white picket fences and all this stuff that that wasn't ever true but it was the it was the myth that the television told everyone mm -hmm. which is ultimately a product that's bought marketed and sold just like anything else yep exactly the cookie monster is a psyop everybody <laughs> trying to get your children to eat more chips ahoy <laughs> um so moving moving on from there um we do get we do get some some more fodder for the conspiracy that zoid may not be prairie's father um do we have any follow-up from anybody on this i'll this i'll push back on this and and i'll say that and i think i mentioned this a while back that I think it's irrelevant whether um, Prairie is biologically Zoid's child. 100%. Because Zoid is her father. He yeah. is the one who was there for her. And I, I think that's ultimately what he's saying in, you know, in this, at the end of the paragraph on page 374, um, when it says, a day would come when she'd ask, didn't you ever worry that you might not be my father, that maybe it was Weed or Brock this time in his arms? Nope. What I was more afraid of was that I might belong to Brock. Like, Zoid never... You know, he never concerned himself with whether or not Prairie was biologically his because yeah. he was, it, she was his child. Like, regardless of who, you know, whatever parent did you want to trace it back to, that was irrelevant to Zoid. The mm -hmm. fact of the matter was that, you know, he was, he loved this child and he was going to take care of her and she was his daughter and nothing was ever going to change that for him. And, and I, that's, you know, I think Prairie sees that as well. Yeah. And uh, look, I think that at, at the end, end analysis after reading this chapter, I think that likely the reality is biological father, but that it doesn't matter in the end, Cody. I, I, th I think you've hit the, the nail on the head. And I think that so much of this scene that we've been going through, because all of this is happening at the family room, mm -hmm. like just for context for the listener, everything we've been talking about the past like 30 minutes has all been family reunion stuff. It's all the same scene where this is occurring. Um, is the illustration that that who your family is does not have to necessarily be bloodline. Like there is there is only a small amount of relation between all of the people, and there is a lot of ideological difference between a good number of them. And yet, still, they are all, you know, they all do have love for one another. For the most part, they do all have these these deep connections and ties. And it doesn't it doesn't matter what those elements of division might be. Like that ultimately doesn't actually have any impact on the way that they feel about one. Um, is sort of the the final analysis that I, the analysis that I come away with here, because if if all of this is a setup where Brock you know takes Prairie and then kills everybody else, which we then are told in the next scene that that really is what he's been trying to do is get them all in a central location so he can take Prairie and then kill the rest. That doesn't make any sense if Prairie isn't actually his kid. Like, there's there's no reason to actually yeah. save her from that or to tell her that she's his child. That doesn't mean anything uh, if that isn't the case. But I, I think that you've absolutely nailed it, Cody, and that it doesn't matter that that's his biological child because it's not his child. And I have to think that's part of why um, Fernessi went and married Zoid. I, yeah. I, I think it's pretty clear that she doesn't necessarily love him and probably never did but she found someone who could be prairie's father that wasn't brock mm -hmm. and it, it didn't almost didn't matter who that was as long as it was not him mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Y'all laughed at me. <laughs> hey, I didn't I didn't laugh at you. I I was just basically refraining from saying what Cody just said. <laughs> I I do I I think it's it's lovely how we see this this uh faith element of Zoid's character really honed in on in this last chapter. I think it's really Yeah. A, because, you know, you can view him as just the guy who takes the fall for all this stuff or a, sh a schmuck who's, you know, if you're going to be a piece of shit about it, a schmuck who's raising some other guy's daughter. But he doesn't view it that way, and therefore it doesn't matter. He is just a good dad to his lovely daughter who he cares a lot about. Yeah, he does. It might have taken him a bit to get there, you know, some some initial resentment yeah. seems to be I mean, present in the beginning when he mm -hmm. became an absent father for a second. But dropping acid when your child is being born might not be the best way to start that relationship. Right. But maybe yeah, not. yeah. But I, I and I think, you know, especially with the ex additional context, speaking of that scene with Weed Atman and being reborn as people, I think that adds an additional layer of what Zoe was talking about with that kid recognizes me. Mm -hmm. Um just another interesting linkage that came to mind. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think you've you both completely, completely nailed it, which does bring us to probably one of the most like visually absurd moments to me at reading it in Brock descending from the helicopter and like hanging over Prairie as she's sleeping. I, I don't necessarily think this is what Thomas Pinchon was going for, but the mental image I had in my mind was the scene in the first Mission Impossible Tom Cruise is repelling from the ceiling and is like spread out oh, and, yeah. and he, he's just like hanging over over her in weird spread sweating out motion. yeah sweating profusely <laughs> um I, like I said this is a very tv this, it is, this scene shifts into moment. such a tv moment it's yeah. so good yeah, and yeah. I, I, I would say that I, I think Pynchon probably did intend it to have that kind of tone, because <laughs> why else would his colleagues be calling him death from slightly above? Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's so <laughs> deflating. Because seriously, we're talking about a man who has commissioned a, well, not directly commissioned, but he's brought a federal helicopter to come abduct who he believes to be his own child. That's crazy. That makes no sense. So yeah, no. of course he's being ridiculous. Well, he's also wearing a flak jacket and Vietnam boots and carrying a flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. It's it's uh. really intense from from Prairie's perspective, obviously, but at the same time, this guy's crazy. Yeah. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He's he's a nut job bringing a flamethrower to come. And he then he tries to be like, I'm your real dad. Come with me. It's really? such a Star Wars moment, too. It is. It's yeah, it really is. is. Yeah. <sighs> Which was even worse when it, it that comes immediately after the jokes between him and Roscoe. I fucking hate Brock Vaughn so much. At least this is the last time we really have to deal with this horse shit. Oh, dude, his death scene was so satisfying. It really was. Oh, man. <laughs> um. But well, before yeah. we get to move on past it, I do like the fact that I like the bit of characterization of having seen Roscoe right at the beginning of his uh, assistanthood to Vaughn. And now we see him at this point having kind of confused himself with like a werewolf Igor type character. Yeah, basically. 
That was exact. Igor was the exact thing that I had in my mind, and I was reading. <laughs> I was thinking like more like a um, oh God, what is it? Uh, Dracula's right hand man, um, Renfield. Renfield, thank you. Oh, well, to be honest, what I actually thought of was uh, Rotwing from uh, Metropolis, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just kind of the image I had. <laughs> That's so weird. He literally says master, though. Like, no, master. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. I, it's Renfield or Igor, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just so, like, it's almost as if there's a portion of this section of this chapter that, that really just understands that he's been built up as this like super evil like super badass guy to the reader you know who like takes what he wants and he doesn't care people that get in his way like like just sort of like all of the kind of basic villain tropes and is now saying what if that guy was actually this is how fucking stupid he would look yeah. in in all of these instances where he's trying to do He's crazy. It's it's like those the guys who try to do the whole like um like we were talking about earlier with the, like the the they're really into like thinking they're big military guys and they're like just absolutely not. But soldier they have of fortune. Like, yeah, the soldier of fortune guys where it's like <laughs> in their minds they're the coolest dudes on the planet. But when you see them, it's just like really, dude. Like yeah, look like a fucking clown. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's so true. And I her her burn back to him about preparation age is real is real good. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. So I was going to ask, what do you all think about the fact that it seems like in in a reading, because obviously the the literally what happens is Reagan signs a bill to take away funding, and mm -hmm. his the helicopter immediately leaves, and he's just kind of stranded in some dangling from state. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you can also see it as prairie holding him off through the use of that preparation h joke but also i've got a i have a knife don't come closer and just like throwing out these these little defenses whether they're they're biting quips or they're just weird threats mm -hmm. that she's keeping him away long enough to <laughs> for the news to get to the radio pilot or the, the helicopter pilot yeah that's it's so cinematic on every level yeah yeah, but just, I I do love that that image that like it, it's so perfect too. Just to get to the the whole sort of beginning place of where this began, where Brock was able to engage in this whole scheme because uh, Frenessi and Flash got cut from Reagan's budget line, and now he's getting cut too. Um, it's a good wrap up to that, but also just to have him be foiled by the the very like administration he thought he was going to like make his name out of or it increases power out of and for that to happen at the moment potential victory it's it's so good it's yeah it's so good and i do love how it's written in that very tv tropey way like you can just picture how that would be filmed um and presented it's, on screen it reminded me of uh the scene in in monty python and the holy grail where they were being chased the animatic where they were being chased and then they the animator had a heart attack and so they yeah. just stopped it like, <laughs> yeah. That's it it's like yeah we're out of money whatever we're done which is my favorite joke in that movie when i was a kid so <laughs> the, the, the quick cutaway to the guy literally <laughs> sitting in a chair grabbing his chest and the whole chair falls backwards oh, oh my god it's so good Okay, so he he does he does fail, but as soon as he gets back to the military base or the airport rather, he he realizes that he's not going to he's not going to have that and he thinks with his penis one more time. 
and flies off to to complete his his grand design, which we then learn is to get all of them in one place and to kill them, and he takes Prairie with him. Um, we'll obviously get to the end result of that journey in a second. Do we have any thoughts on Alexei, the Soviet defector who's a really big fan of Billy Barf and the Vomitones? <laughs> Uh, it's just such good dialect work as there has been so much of in this chapter and there will continue to be in the past in the last five or six pages oh it's so good i loved that just that brief aside very famous in soviet union you know 80 garage tape <laughs> it reminded me of um i don't remember the character's name in clerks the the russian yes. dude that sang the metal songs. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. That was immediately where my mind went. <laughs> oh, we re- that was. His- yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> right after that, we get the return to the movie at nine, which I'm going to read this out because it's so funny. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the movie at nine, more than the usual basketball epic, was a story of transcendent courage on the the gallant but doomed LA Lakers as they struggled under hellish human conditions at Boston Garden against an unscrupulous foe. Hostile referees and fans whose behavior might have shamed their mothers had there not been there. Screaming epithets. <laughs> oh, God. Page turn. Running Laker free throws, sloshing beer on their children in moments of high emotion already. To be fair, the producers had tried to make their best to, to, tried the best to make the Celtics look good. Besides Sidney Poitier as Casey Jones. There was Paul McCartney in his first acting role as Kevin McHale with Sean Penn as Larry Bird. Great on the casting. Lakers side, he's <laughs> so good. On the Lakers side was Lou Gossett Jr. as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Douglas as Pat Riley, and Jack Nicholson as himself. <laughs> <laughs> Otto and Blood, who were watching this down at the garage in Vineland, being both passionate Laker fans, had to find something else to bicker about. Say, Blood, Vado remarked aggressively. Some righteous-looking shades Jack's wearing tonight. Oh, it's so good. Oh, my God. And this is... It has to be mentioned that this is written in in a time before the internet. So, like, he just knows... Like, Paul McCartney as Kevin McHale is fucking golden. (laughs) Like, you have to have a knowledge of these people well enough to know who looks like who among these actors and athletes. If this was oh a visual God. show, this is where we'd have to insert a photo of Kevin McHale. Please just go, like, <laughs> take take five minutes and look all of these people up because they are 100% the perfect casting choice. It's so good. <laughs> well, and I, I love that this is, in, in some ways, it's like a, it's a self-parody of pointing back at Gravity's Rainbow and the the racial dynamics at play in that book and Mm -hmm. to to basically say look it's a movie that's doing the same thing that that book was doing with the preterite and the the elect and yet it's just this tv movie that like at this point in time had all of these kind of b-list celebrities playing these very you know not paul mccartney's not a b-list but you get what i mean playing these very bad roles (laughs) Like, yeah. regardless of whether these are well cast for looking like the people, the idea of Jack Nicholson playing basketball is so bad. It doesn't make sense to actually make this movie at all. Right. Well, I think yeah. Jack Nicholson's famous for sitting courtside at Lakers games. Yeah. 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 
but he wouldn't play it and he wouldn't be believable playing it even when he was young. <laughs> I also I um, do love Sean Penn as Larry Bird. That's that's a good one. It's a really good one. All of that does bring us to uh are the last days of Brock Vond or the last hours of Brock Vond, I guess is probably the better description. Um the this this film being played at nine o'clock on TV is a transition point for us to be with Blood and Vato again. And we learn that they are going to go out on a call. Brock has ended up in a car and seemingly potentially in the river or at least off the road. Um and they need to go rescue him. Not what they're actually gonna go do. I guess I think the they're, gonna, they're gonna rescue him in a different kind of way. Yeah, I suppose that's fair. <laughs> they're, they're taking him home. Yeah. Um, what did we think about this section? This is an interesting section of the book. I, I think it's really beautiful, despite like, you know, I. It's one of those things where you feel like Brock doesn't deserve an ending so beautiful. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we don't see Fernese again past this point. We don't see Zoid again. We don't see these characters that we actually care about again. And instead we get treated uh, to this really wonderful uh, departure of this character into uh, the, the, the state of death, however, whatever specifics that may be. And uh he's just the worst and the whole time he th- he's with people who he thinks that he trusts who he thinks have his back and he's just kind of being l- led down this path to something inevitable mm-hmm. and it's so serene and it's uh so annoying that he gets this long outro but you know who else would it be we don't you know Frenesi doesn't deserve this. Zoe doesn't deserve this. Sasha doesn't deserve it. Yeah, it's. I I agree with you hundred percent that it. It's a. Uh, I don't want to say it's wasted words on such a terrible person, but it's you know it is kind of like a weird, uh, almost frustrating thing that that Brock does get such a. Uh, a beautifully written, write off essentially, um. I don't really have much to add to it other than that this this particular death scene reminded me of um the the death of I guess you could call it both Fred uh or Bill Pullman and and uh Balthazar Getty's characters in Lost Highway mm-hmm. um where they're just kind of led to an inevitable end out in the darkness and and um and it's a fate that they know that they're they're coming to and they're just kind of forced to deal with it and resign to it um and they're both just very dark and surreal kind of uh send-offs but yeah this this one i mean I, you know we all wanted this for brock we all wanted him to go but there was a part of me that was just like if i can shoot him in the head who gives a shit fuck that guy dump him in a fucking trash can somewhere <laughs> exactly that's that's what i wanted absolutely and instead we have this wonderful moment where blood and vato tell him this lovely little story and he just suddenly realizes that he's in the land of the dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's walked into Patrick Bateman's fun plastic wrapped bedroom and it's all, you know, just close your eyes, dude. Do you have a dog or something? 
Um, I, I, you know, I actually find this ending interesting. I, I was not frustrated by it. I actually found it very fitting. Um, and because I, and that this could have to do with just my interpretation of it. The interpretation that I come away with is that the minute Vaughn stole the federal helicopter to go, you know, run after what his, he ultimately wanted, I have a feeling that his helicopter was just shot down. And he's, this is him being sent to the land of the dead after he has died. And is he himself has become a thanatoid now. And that blood and Vado are dispatched to go find him in the exact same way that they were dispatched to go find weed at, at the entrance of his character to the story. And that Brock for all his power and his proposed institutional level posturing that he represented within Nixon and all of the evil that he did and all of the, you know, heartache and suffering that he caused, he still has become a victim of the same thing that enabled him so evil and has his own karmic debt to work off, not just because of what he's done to people, but because of what has been done to him over his life that potentially made him that way. We talked about the possibility that he was assaulted as a child you know, there's obviously other things that probably occurred to him when he was that that form the underlying basis of his psyche there. And so Blood and Vato, you know, have some level of sympathy for him because they know the kind of pain that leads into someone being a thanatoid. And the moment that they cross him over into the land of the dead, the moment they have that that's, you know, that that scene where he talks about how they're going to need to take his bones because they don't go to the other side. The first thing that Pinchon inserts is that it was immediately out all over the thanatoid wire, as if they immediately all know that there's another one of them now. And potentially by his existence within that world, they can begin to, to work off the karmic debt that he has laid onto other people by his evil that he's done. And so I think it's this... I think it's this moment where Pinchon is almost pointing to the idea that is he evil? Yeah. Is he the icon of all of this? Yeah. But at the end of the day, he's also a victim too. And for anybody to be able to work towards, you know, redemption or a dismantling of these systems that allow such evil to take place, it does require those people to be, to be guided through it as well, or to be guided out of it. And to be shown some level of compassion or, or, or treatment, you know, in this case, it's a form of the story before they send him off for anything to change at all. That's that's sort of the the, the thing that I come away from this with. That's a that's a really interesting analysis of it. I hadn't thought about that, but that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, that, that's I think that's a great way to summarize the thematic aspects of it. I I viewed it as even actually a little more symbolic. I viewed it as like. Brock, as we learned about in the chapter mostly dedicated to him, is, like, to me, is this, like, puppet, not necessarily puppet of regimes, but he is a person who's animated exclusively through those kinds of organizations. And so the minute he decided to go against it, it's not even that he was shot down, it's just that he fell apart. He just stopped Mm -hmm. existing, because the only thing that kept him running as an entity was this... In, in this case, symbolized by the, the government funds, but the endorsement of the state. Yeah, very true. Um, do we have any thoughts on the fact that DL and Takeshi apparently have been actually hooking up this entire time, or at least since three years ago? 
Well, I would like to, to since he's not here to rub it in our face, I'd like to <laughs> apologize to Luke. Because <laughs> he was right, obviously. We're uh, sorry, Luke. Yeah. yeah, we don't. We 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 never we never believe you enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about the the story that that he gets told at the ninja about hell? It's another big thing here. I'm trying right. to find that that section. Do you have the the page? Number? Uh, three. I remember it vaguely. Three eighty two. Okay. I can read I it if you want. Or three eighty one. Um, as for Takeshi, the head ninjet had managed to corner him. He was on a punkytron machine, all hooked up with no escape, and while an inkjet printer moved along the meridians of his naked skin, laying down trigger point labels in different colors, adding reference numbers and Chinese ideograms, senior ninjet. Punkutek stood by with an ivory fescue, noting and commenting to a small bevy of teen novices all in white gi with trainee armbands. Sister Rochelle, as so often in the past, now socked Takeshi with another one of her allegories, this time about hell. When the earth was still a paradise long, long ago, two great empires, hell and heaven, battled for its possession. Hell won and heaven withdrew to an appropriate distance. Soon citizens of the lower realm were flocking up to visit occupied Earth on group excursion fairs, swarming in their asbestos touring cars and RVs all over the landscape, looking for cheap labor bargains in the shops, taking pictures of each other in a blue and green ambiance that didn't register on any film you could buy in hell. Till the novelty wore off, and visitors began to realize that Earth was just like home. Same traffic conditions, unpleasant food, deteriorating environment, and so forth. Why leave home only to find a second to escape? So the tourist business began to dwindle. And then the Empire was calling back its first administrators and soon even its troops, as if drawing inward, closer to its own Thonian fires. After a while, the tunnel entrances began to grow over, blur and disappear behind poison oak and berry bushes, get covered by landslides, silted up in floods, till only a few lone individuals, children, Neighborhood idiots now and then would stumble on out in a deserted place, but dare inside only as far as the first turnings and loss of outdoor light, and then all the gateways to hell were finally lost, surviving only in local tales handed down the generations, sad recitals, and if they would again, stories as congested and dark as UFO stories are ethereal and luminous, and always shame-faced with an air not of UFO elation but guilt at having somehow not been good enough for them, the folks who lived in hell. So, over time, hell became a storied place of sin and penitence, and we forgot that its original promise was never punishment, but reunion with the true, long-forgotten metropolis of Earth redeemed. It's such a dense little story that mm -hmm. I find much harder to unpack than the earlier Sister Rochelle uh, allegory. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the, the simple thing is that I think there's a lot of Pynchon's novels, um, this one and Gravity's Rainbow most, well, and Lot 49, I guess, those three most, in my mind, are that, that can be read very directly as, like, Gnostic allegories of uh, transcendent enlightenment. Um, and beyond that, I have a very hard time 
pulling things from that again really dense story. <laughs> Cody, what about yeah, you? Any thoughts? I don't. I don't have anything that I could put down right now. It, I mean, it's a Will said perfectly. It's a very dense um, section, and I'm I'm sure there's something there that I you know if I gave enough time to think on it, I could probably come up with something or I don't know. I might not even, it's just, just a very, very interesting uh, little allegory that she put out there. Do you have any thoughts of that, Kate? The the thing that I kind of get out of that. So there's no, unlike the previous allegory, there's no real space. Try to do some, see if there was some other sort of reference to religion that I could come across, but I, that there was nothing that I could find for it. Um, so it, it's it's a wholly made up thing by Pinchon. The, the biggest thing that I can kind of think of it is it gets back to that same idea of like the fulcrums and the balancing of evil with good, in the sense that you know there is this there is this paradise that is kind of despoiled, and maybe there's there's a period where it's worse, and then suddenly the the entrances to hell that the, these people come out of gets sealed up and then maybe things get better and, and people kind of forget about it only for potentially another war to take place or for the gates to get reopened. It seems to, at least on my reading through the first time, be part of that underpinning element of, of forces and counter forces that, that Pinchon is talking about or that, you know, evil maybe goes in these, in these cycles where it's, it's very intense and then, people kind of step away from it before getting attracted back to it, like in the, the case of the children potentially re-entering the cave, but then not fully ingratiating themselves. Um, the thing that sort of conflicts with that, and the, the hardest part for me that when it comes to parsing it out, is the line about uh, reunion, not rebellion. Um, that's the, that part of the end is, is the, the part that I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to square that circle, so to speak, with with everything else in this novel. But that's how it read to me is this idea that and and we know that Pinchon views the untapped earth as a Edenic landscape. Mm-hmm. What that what the hell else is Mason and Dixon about? Right. And the the question really comes down to what it what is the management of hell that temporarily despoil that paradise? What does that mean? What is Pinchon saying there? Is he is he making some point about how if you if you had heaven attached to paradise you have no actual balance of forces you need both evil and good paradise and hell to create the the reunion necessary in you know the the fulcrum to work for the forces and the counter forces to work in that pattern and if you kill that you lose some fundamental aspect of how the the world is set up it's it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to to pack out and it's, I've been thinking a lot in this book, going back to what Will said, I want to say it was in chapter nine, where he was confused about why Frenessi would, you know, sleep with Brock, why Frenessi would be attracted to this thing that's like so antithetical to everything that she believes in. And that gets to the fact that Thomas Pinchon kind of does this a lot, where women sleep with people that they, they shouldn't. Um, you know, Penny Kimball, the DEA, uh, or the, the, the DA assistant attorney sleeps with, with, uh, 
Doc in Inherent Vice and like mm. does does drugs with him. Um in Bleeding Edge, the protagonist there, she sleeps with this psychotic CIA agent yeah. named Nicholas Windus. And mm. here you have Fernessi sleeping with with Brock. It's it's something that he goes back to time and time again. And what it really reminded me of this time through is if you read through the Old Testament and particularly the books of the prophets in the Tanakh, you'll come away with the fact that time and time again, the nation of Israel is likened to a harlot who sells herself out to the forces of, of um, the Canaanite gods or of, of other pagan beliefs. And that, she, you know, she as a nation has been unfaithful to, to God, the, the husband in this, in these allegories. It's something that comes up all the time in these books in the old testament it's it's repeated over and over again and i feel like in a lot of ways he is using the same kind of imagery and allegory to explain why these social causes and movements fall apart is that they they you know to use biblical language they prostitute themselves to something else and oftentimes you know that could be drugs or that could be the government or that could be power or that could be any of the things that pinchon talks about but I think his usage of women specifically seems to recall that to me in, in, in a lot of cases. And that seems, and maybe this is a stretch, I'm, I'm digging real deep through the recesses of my brain here, but that seems to connect to this story in the sense that, you know, paradise, the beauty of the untapped world and all of the things that it can be, all the things that humanity can be, seems to not be itself without this additional, you know, aspect of evil or aspect of, of hell, and that there needs to be this sort of regular, you know, whether it's the, the nation of Israel or, or these social movements that get blown up, this regular reunion with evil, this reunion with hell, for things to be complete in these cycles. And that it doesn't work any other way. It seems to be describing the, the condition of just how things are, not how they should or could be. Mm-hmm. That's at least what I come away from all of it with, personally. So with regard to your your hell interpretation, you know, uh, the 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 in particular the the lines here that talk about hell um, being a storied place of sin and penitence rather than reunion, mm-hmm. um, I think it's it's the reason that I go back to the 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 heretic churches of Christianity is that it reminds me a lot of discussion, especially linking it back to the earlier discussion of sister Rochelle's with the idea of, of redemption being internal and preexistent and that the offer of transcendence into heaven as being illusory. Um, I, I see the, the discussion of hell as reunion being, more of a statement of there there never was this place of damnation there were just two different ways to look at um the the ideal and mm-hmm. in one case you had this kind of he he leaves it on the table but this kind of uh moving past this kind of isolation um and on the other side you have this reunion this return to what you had before and seeing those both as ultimately uh, 
similar, not necessarily the same, but uh, substitutable for one another in the most meaningful of sense, and that they're both equally human. Yeah, that's that's also good context, too. But that does bring us quite literally back to the, the no-sex clause. Mm-hmm. And I, I was wondering what you guys thought about that, because when I read it, I I have a hard time reading it any more, or at least any more interestingly, than basically Pynchon realizing that he'd written these two very fun characters into a situation where they basically have to be celibate. Mm-hmm. And him being like, well, that would kind of suck. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's give him a happy ending yeah. in that way. And I, I do love that it kind of ends with, with DL finally acknowledging that she does love him, and and that, or at least is attracted to him in the same way. Like that, that being symbolic of her asking to love him after, after all these times that he's asked her. Um, it does feel like just a very, a very sweet ending to the new characters that are very enjoyable. It, yeah. My, well, we also need to address the fact that, that uh, Takeshi seems to be planning on using chicken feed uh, as amphetamines <laughs> now. So it's, there's... There's still some potential for yeah. a downfall on his end if we're at that point. Oh, I don't See, think it, it wouldn't be Takeshi and DL without hijinks. That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, Takeshi is nothing if not a little bit of a cartoon character. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, the, the concept though of sneaking into a chicken coop to steal the amphetamines out of chicken feed only for him to, to make too much noise and have all of the chickens start squawking at him <laughs> was, was great. It's yeah. Like, you gotta wonder what that guy's drug budget is. I mean, it, I, he's resorting to chicken feed, so it might not be too much. Well, perhaps was back when he was an yeah. insurance adjuster. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's just constantly loaded all of the time. Um. So that does bring us pretty much to the end of the book. There's really only one other part. It's when Prairie goes back out to the field to ask Brock to come back and take her. Um. I interpret this scene really as her breaking this cycle of issues between her her mother and then, you know, her her grandmother. They all have this like uniform obsession, this this uniform attraction and are attracted to the things that will destroy them to get back to the the earlier stuff that I was talking about. And so Frenessi or Prairie rather has this moment where she she could end up the same way. You know, she's asking Brock to come back and take her. But in the same way that, you know, Frenessi was almost saved by the simple love of, you know, her child or the potential of being a mother, um, Prairie is saved by the, the love of her dog, essentially. Mm-hmm. that the, re- the return of her dog and, and the home that that re- represents and the love of that home in this, you know, is... is a different angle on family and being family Renessi's early epiphany, but it sort of has the same effect. And, you know, the book, the book closes out with this kind of understanding that this isn't going to happen again. The cycle of this has been broken and Prairie's going to be okay. Um, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, I do too. I like to think that even if for some reason he did come back, I think she's shown that she's stronger than her mom when mm-hmm. she when she told him off um and i do like you know to to touch on the ending here i do like the and, and luke pointed this out um when he was talking about his his feelings on the 
the half of the chapter in whole. Um, the the ending paragraph kind of putting us back where we started with Desmond and and um, and also the mention of the Blue Jays and it's you know that cyclical kind of nature of of everything that the book has been touching on, but in a in a better kind of more optimistic way. Um, you know, we're, we're back to this kind of starting point again, but now it's, you know, Prairie has this opportunity to, to make her story and to make her, her choices in her, in her life and move in, in her direction. And I think, you know, like I said earlier, this is one of my favorite pinch on endings and I, I love it's, I, I think there is an optimism that's present here at the end. And, mm-hmm. um, it's yeah it's one of the you know, we talked also about you know book hangover and mm-hmm. there's definitely is that but at the same time like i finished reading this back half again this morning and i was like i want to i, I want to go back to it already like i i want to go back to those characters i want to go back to to their stories um when we finished mason and dixon i it, it was exhausting because of its breadth and and scope and everything um and it, its length. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of happy to be done with it. You know, I was glad that we did it and I love that story. Um, but by the end of it, it was just like, you know, it, it, it's exhausting, but I feel like with this one, it's, you know, it's so much, it's leaner and, and still packs in everything into a shorter narrative. And it leaves me at the end, just kind of happy and, and wanting to return to it sooner than I would want to return to something like, like Mason and Dixon or like when I finished Gravity's Rainbow, going back to that one because I need more time after reading something like that. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's a warmer, it's one of his warmer and, and happier and more optimistic endings and I, I really love that about this. Yeah, absolutely. Will, what about you? Yeah, well, so I, I actually have to, I have to go basically right now and so I'm sorry to not share any quotes or to go any deeper on it. Um, but I, I, I have to say that both of y'all have basically summarized how I feel about the ending. I think it's, it's really, uh, it's very touching. I think it's a really nice reminder that Prairie is not just like magically better than her parents. She mm-hmm. has these weaknesses. She has this death drive that, uh, you know, Pynchon, it seems would say that most of us have, you know, he, she, she once bond in some way, even though she knows that would be horrible for her. Mm-hmm. But the important part of this section is that um, Desmond means from Munster, which is the place that Cork in Ireland is, uh, which is the place that James Joyce's family is from. So clearly, QED, <laughs> this is a rewriting <laughs> of the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus the whole Argos thing. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, no, sa- sadly, I have to go. Um, but I'm sure both of you will, uh, well, I, I'm sure that either of you or both of you will have stolen one of the quotes I would have chosen. Uh, <laughs> Good <so>. to know. <laughs> See y'all later. See you later. See you well. Well, yeah. Duh, any any final thoughts on the book as a whole, Cody? No, not at the moment. I, I think I'm going to formulate all of that for when we do our wrap-up. Mm-hmm. Um. Suffice to say that I I do love this book. I really I really really do. Yeah. Yep. It's I I you know I, I know when I when we first started talking about it I said that it was in like E and I think it it's, it still is there. 
Um, I, I don't know if I can necessarily say or no, I think I said that it is in the top my mind. Um, I would say it's in my top three as far as his books go. Um, yeah, it's it's so incredible. And it's, I, I hate everybody who says that this book is not good. <laughs> like, I just, that's, there's, that, requ- that would require a cognitive dissonance that I'm uncomfortable with to say that I, this I, book is bad. I have to think that a, a good majority of the people who say they dislike this book either genuinely do not actually dislike it as much as they say they do, that it's just more of like a saving face thing because the general consensus is that it's not good, or they just haven't read it and have have read all the um, comments on it and are just kind of you know taking that as gospel and like, okay, well, it must be bad. Even the pension fans don't like it. Like it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you've gotten to this point in this podcast and you've not read this book, what are you doing? Um, it go read the book. It's so it's so good. It's so good. It is. Oh, and yeah, I'm. It's. I just want to read it again. I totally agree with you. I really, I, yeah. I just want to go back and and restart it. And man, is it is it. So worth your time and so worth the additional analysis. I hope that if our podcast has done anything, it's convinced people that it needs needs more attention than it gets. I would hope so. Are there any funny parts that we did not uh, cover as we went through? Uh, the only one that comes to mind, I don't know why I enjoyed it so much, was Hector almost running into someone with a cigar <laughs> and burning their beard. Just I don't know. It just seemed like a great thing to do. Yeah, that's that's entirely entirely fair. I didn't have I, anything. I, we covered everything else as we. Went yeah, through. I was gonna say the funniest thing, honestly, was the the eighty four NBA Finals movie, the basketball movie. Just yeah, fucking killed me. Uh, do you want to read your quote first? Yeah. So I think I'm gonna go with on on page three seventy. Um. So obviously this is from the family reunion and this is kind of not terribly long out under yellow bulbs at a long weathered table zoid found himself trying to help flash with the shock of meeting so many in-laws in one place both men from time to time looking fearfully looking around fearfully like unarmed visitors in a jungle clearing as out beyond this particular patch of light traverses and beckers went practicing on scales working on engines debating talking back to the tube sending up gusts of laughter like ritual smoke cast up to an unpeasable wind a traverse grandmother somewhere was warning children against the October blackberries of this coast. They belong to the devil. Any that you eat are his property. And don't be like and he don't like blackberry thieves. He'll come after you. Even skeptical adolescents weaved in her voice's spell. When you see those unhappy souls out by the roadside, back up the lanes and the ruins of the old farms, wherever the briars grow thick, harvesting berries out in the clouds and rain of October, why just drive by and don't look back, because you know where they're where they've come from and who their labor belongs to, and where, they're, where they'll have to go back to at the close of day. And other grand folks could be heard arguing the perennial question of whether the United States still lingered in a pre-fascist twilight, or whether that darkness had fallen long stupefied years ago. And on the light they thought they saw was coming, uh, was, they saw was coming from only from millions of tubes, all showing the same bright colored shadows. One by one, as other voices joined in, the names began. Some shouted, some accompanied by spit, the old reliable names, good for hours of contention, stomach distress, and insomnia. 
Hitler, Roosevelt, Kennedy, Nixon, Hoover, Mafia, CIA, Reagan, Kissinger, that collection of names and their tragic interweaving that stood not constellated above in, above in any night-wide remoteness of light, but below, diminished to the last unfaceable American secret to be pressed each time deeper again and again beneath the meanest of random souls, one blackly fermenting leaf on the forest floor that no one wanted to turn over because of all that lived virulent waiting just beneath. Um, I, I, this goes back to what I've talked about countless times with, with this book and the, the examination of the darkness, um, lurking underneath, uh, the surface of everything that you know, pinch on covers in pretty much everything. We talked about it at length in, in Mason and Dixon, especially with uh, the, the kind of Vinland scenes and, and all that. Um, and all our, our countless discussions on David Lynch and his, his use of this idea, but it, it, it is such a powerful idea and and it's one that um even as much as we've talked about it i think it it's so many people especially in in this country do everything in their power to overlook the the evil excuse me the evil that has um permeated through history here um and and they treat it exactly like that you know it's this this blackness that that exists there but we just walk over it and try to pretend that it does not exist yeah yeah i couldn't have said it better myself um i'm gonna finish out the quote that i started reading earlier six with um weed and and prairie um where it, it goes on i'll keep an eye out for you in fact they were soon to become an item around shade creek out to all hours among the town, a smoky indoor by shadow patched fluorescent bulbs across covered bridges lined with shops and beneath the many clock faces beaming past thanatoid dogs lounging in groups who had learned how to give up wagging their tails and now gestured meaningfully instead. Weed would stuff himself with bucket after bucket of popcorn. Harry would show him the secrets of Pachinko. Seldom, if ever, would either talk about Nessie, whom Perry had managed at last. I just, I, I read most of the, the quote earlier, about it, but I love that ending. Just this very simple, you know, love between people, you know, completely platonically. Prairie, Prairie does care deeply for him and is closer to what occurred that led to him being in the state that he is than, you know, she probably would have imagined, but still feels this in, intense care for him. And I think is is an example of why Prairie ends up being very different from the rest of her family and ends up being the one who breaks that cycle. And just that, Absolutely. yeah, she knows that this man was betrayed by his friends and that he just needs somebody to be his friend. And it's, yeah. oh man, I can't talk about it. I can't. Fucking beautiful. I really is. Oh God. It's such a yeah, it's a beautiful book. It absolutely is. Um man, do you have any uh most pinch on parts? I I really think if I had to pick something, it would be the it would be using the family reunion as a backdrop for closing up all of the uh the character arcs and the thematic elements that are that are done in that section. Um, 
I think I don't remember who it was early, and I feel bad that I don't remember already. But who was talking about earlier about how at the end of it all, like it, family is is what ultimately matters, and it's the bonds that you form with these people. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's such a central part of what this book is talking about. That throughout all of this, um, that's ultimately what binds us together is is these people that we care about, whether whether or not we are blood related to them. I think for all of of the sort of the dream sequences and the um, the character arcs that get tied up, all taking place within that family reunion, I think is is incredibly important to the points that he was trying to make in in a lot of this book. Um, and it's something that it's it's done in a really kind of subtle way. Like you don't really think about the fact that this is all taking place at a family reunion until you really stop and think about it. Like you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about, you know, whatever part of the the narrative we were at, like this is still in the family reunion. Like that plays such a pivotal backdrop to all of this that's happening at the back end of this chapter. And Mm -hmm. I think it's very intentional that, that it was, that it was set in that, that scene. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, I mean, I think if I had a most pinch on part of the chapter, it would be the whole extended sequence where Bob dies. Yeah, um, from the, from the weird dream logic of, of like him seeing the payphone that has a giant sign over it and giving the reader sort of a glimpse into what it might be like to be a thanatoid through that sequence. Mm-hmm. And then just the whole, yeah, the description of the descent that he goes on towards the land of the dead until you know his bones are taken from him like i want to see like david lynch just film that if 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 possible you know that would Um, be a beautiful short film for sure yeah absolutely and just the way that all of that is portrayed and the detail that comes across in it is is i would say the most pinch on part of the chapter i don't think there's another writer who's ever lived who would be able to to write something like that all right so that does bring us to the end of Vineland, uh, but just like last time, we have collated some reviews from the good old people, goodreads.com, um, <laughs> who have been nice enough to provide us with their thoughts on books. Um, I'm going to read a couple from one star, two star, and three star, because I think Ooh, that, th- okay. that three star Goodreads reviews can be very interesting. Um, this first review comes from somebody named Peter who includes a quote at the beginning that says when power corrupts it keeps a long list of progress written in the most sensitive memory device the human face this novel tells the story of the people whose lives were touched by Francie Gates a one-time 60s radical who turns government informer and goes hiding a daughter the novel opens in the fictional northern Californian district of Vineland where Zoid Wheeler, Furnessy's ex-husband, is living in semi-seclusion with his 14-year-old daughter, Prairie. When Zoid learns that Prairie is being targeted by a charismatic prosecutor, Brock Vaughn, who first convinced Furnessy to betray her friends, Zoid sends Prairie away, however, she is still keen to know her mother. As the reunion progresses, all of the main characters converge on Vineland at the large annual reunion of Fr- Brock Vaughn lowers himself from a helicopter in an attempt to kidnap Prairie as she sleeps alone in the woods, but just as he is about to grab her, the funding program is cut and it is he who winch is winched away vineland spans from the 1960s to the mid 80s the novel covers the paranoia of the nixon years the end of the hippie movement birth of reaganite politics and the main themes are the corrupting influence of power and the death of idealism 
The prose is dense. Pynchon moves fluidly in his narrative from character to character and between time settings, picking up dropping plot lines seemingly at whim. Now, whilst I found it marginally better than the previous novel by that author that I'd read, The Crying Vlog 49, I cannot say that I particularly enjoy this one either. Despite comments on the blurb to the contrary, I did not find it exhilarating and wretchedly funny, quote-unquote, nor did I find it beautifully structured, quote-unquote. Rather, I found it self-indulgent and rather dull. What kept going was what kept me going was an interest in seeing just whether Fernessi and Prairie would be reconciled and whether Vond would get his comeuppance, but found the ending a letdown as well. I suspect that this will be something of a Marmite book. You will either love it or hate it, and unfortunately I'm in the latter camp. 1.5 stars if I could. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'll, I, I will give them credit for, I mean, it sounds like they read the whole book. It I'll, does. I'll give them that. Yes. Um, I think they missed a huge chunk of what the book was about. Uh-huh. Um, as evidenced by the distillation of its themes being only two things, the, the death of idealism and, and the corruption of power. Uh-huh. Way more going on in this book than just those two things. Yeah. Um, and also the only complaint seems to be that it was hard to read, so I'm going to give it one star. Yeah, like, I don't... It's, I don't know. Like, this isn't the most unhinged review I've ever seen, but it's, it's like it's frustrating. And it's, yep, that's why I included it, Cody. Because <laughs> this person is just so close. <laughs> they really are. I feel like they, you know, okay. I think I've, I think I've, I think I've tracked onto what this is. I think this is, a, this is a person who came into this expecting a, a lighter read as evidenced by their, their comment that the prose was dense. It absolutely yeah. is. Absolutely not denying that. I think that, I, I, and I can't say that everyone should or can take the time to read slower and more analytically. I understand uh-huh. that books can be fun, and that's a primary purpose of reading, hundred percent. But I think if I, I think within the first chapter of this book, you should have an understanding that this is going to be something that needs a lot of unpacking, and is going to require a little bit of legwork on the reader's part. And I think by that point, if you're not willing to meet the book on its own terms, then you don't need to continue on with it. Right. Because you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, Um, that would all make sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, kudos for finishing it. And I think that if you, if for whatever reason, Peter is listening to this, I think if you go back and and take the time to, to examine it, I think that there's a lot more you yeah like you said he's so close uh-huh. like it's all right there it's i feel like he got to the door knocked on the door and it took a little too long for that door to open so he turned around and left yeah exactly uh this next one comes from emily who gave it one star cannot follow what is going on and i give up shelved is half read unfinished <laughs> i get i don't i i i genuinely don't get people who don't finish a book but still feel obligated to rate it i really that part of my brain just cannot activate anything like i i have dnf tons of books in my time because i don't like it's just not vibing with me at the right time or i just don't care for something about it but i I am by no means going to comment on the book as a whole after i do that like yeah if it comes up in conversation, I'll just say, you know, I did not finish that book. 
here's why, but I can't say whether or not I would have enjoyed it because I don't know. I didn't finish the thing. Yeah, it's, I, I've never understood that behavior either. Um, but then again, I also have a problem where I have to finish any book that I start. I, I won't allow myself to not finish it. I used to be like that. I, I can't do that anymore. I feel like yeah. I don't have enough time in my life to, to fight through them. I wish I, I did. There are books that I will go back to if I don't finish them. Yeah. I wish I didn't have this affliction, but I think it's a curse of the yacht. <laughs> I think uh-huh. Will said he had the same thing too, though. <laughs> Uh, next one comes from James Mayo, who left a one-star review. Uh, like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, oh, but, tri- no. but trivial and uninspiring. It was convolutedly absurd. Wit was forced into every sentence. An obsession with hard-ons that would impress Freud, and depressed and flat beyond belief characters. It was like Pinchon was challenged to write a cliche Pinchon novel, with a random note picked out of a hat. Okay. <laughs> so we're we're accusing him of doing some kind of William S. Burroughs cut up fiction kind of thing. Yeah. Uh but I also don't get the comparison to Hitchhiker's Guide. Like I don't understand that at all. And that's one of my favorite books. I yeah. absolutely adore that book, but that is it is absolutely nothing like Vineland. Um I guess maybe if you want to say that they both deal with philosophical themes and have funny parts in them, but Jesus Christ, that's a lot of books. Um, wow. I, I just, I don't even know where to begin. With I, yeah. It's this, I have so many questions after that, like depressed and flat beyond belief characters. What? I, that, that I really can't. We just, we, at this whole thing we just talked about with, with all the, you know, everybody at the family reunion and their character arcs coming together and fucking Prairie and, and Weed, like, how do you find those two characters flat? Yeah. Like, what, what about them? Like, he's Zoid, even. Like, he, I think he's, it, you could maybe make the argument at the beginning that he seems like he's going to be a flat character, but boy, does he come around by the end and you really get a full sense of who he is. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are, and again, hmm. I think that's an accusation you could level at something maybe like Gravity's Rainbow, where I don't think all of the 400-whatever characters are there to be developed. Mm-hmm. Um, but this book definitely does not have flat, flat characters, characters yeah. at all. Uh, Greg Halvorsen reviewed this uh, with one star and said, Yet more plotless meandering and garbled gobbledygook from the master of sadism disguised as writing. Dot, dot, dot. To call these books, in parentheses, more or less Pinchon's canon, close parentheses, garbage is an insult to all that we throw away. Thanks, Roger Ebert. That's a great one-star review. Um, <laughs> what, what? I don't... <sighs> plotless. That part plotless. bothers me. That, that <laughs> word bothers me, I think, more than anything else. Like... And be- believes that calling this book garbage is an insult to garbage is that's again wild. that's some Roger that's some Roger Ebert shit right there yeah um I, see and this is I think this is again where my problem with these one star reviews is I'm not saying you have to enjoy everything you read I don't think you have to enjoy this book that's fine but I think you have to be able to articulate it a lot better than just plotless and meandering and mm-hmm. an insult to garbage like that's 
Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. Uh, Luke Alexander rated it one star and said, On reading this, I was overly irritated and generally unenthralled with the world it created. All the characters fell flat and soulless. Reading it was like slogging through a dense textbook. If you read it, get ready for every other page to be one gigantic un- paragraph. I'd rather read a book in French, of which I understand less than 30% of, than read this book again. It might as well have been written in Sanskrit or hieroglyphic or something. I just, I will preface my statement to this by saying, it's almost more pretentious to say you know 30% French than to say yeah, you know French. To put, a, to put a percentage onto it. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty bad. Yeah. And again, this is this is another one of those like I don't think you read the book like the wall of text argument you, again, you could level that at Gravity's Rainbow. It's certainly there. Not here. There are a handful of those times for sure. Um but it's it's not I don't get the wall of text thing from this book. Really maybe more than any of his books. May Bleeding Edge probably had less of it even. Mhm. Um the plotless that bothers me the most the most like this is i think by this point probably his most cohesive plot um at that point in his writing yeah yep uh we're now gonna look at some two-star reviews this is from matthew ted fifth book of 2022 2.5 stars i'm almost with old harold bloom on this one Oh, but, not, no. but not quite so violently. I didn't find it brilliant, and it's a shame as I was expecting to be in the Vineland defense crowd, who supported against the claims that it's been weak compared to his bigger and more literary giants. Pinch on one-sided Kerouac is a big... And I definitely felt his ghost with an element. It's a rollicking romp of 1984 back of the 60s in its counterculture, set in Vineland, California, the only U.S. state I've been to myself with the sort of literariness of Gravity's Rainbow, which came some 17 years prior to this. It's a mad pinching land fest that didn't seem entirely worth it for the silliness in the It's filled, as ever, with strange characters with strange names, Zoid Wheeler being our main guy. It's also filled with Star Trek references, for some reason. Ninjas, cops, and altogether is known as a blend of daytime drama, political thriller, kung fu movie, and typical pinch-on paranoia. I liked elements of the plot and really didn't care for others, it felt quite long, even at just pinch-on light size, 100-ish pages, and some of the digressions were boredom-inducing. The overarching theme of the novel, which I think family is, I think family as well as the state of America, was great, but only in the end did it really start to emerge nicely, pathetically, care. Pinchon did leave me shutting the book with a sweet feeling in my stomach, having written a wonderful final line. Why are you calling it pathetic then? Bits were funny, but generally I don't think it was as funny as TRP imagined it would be. But then again, I already knew this from previous reads. Him and I have very different senses of humor. It's taken me a while to read this, a bit every day without really trying too hard at the end, and I'm glad it's done. Hoping to read some of the bigger ones his this year or next. Bloom was a little bit harsh, but he's not entirely wrong. It's meant to be fun, and I wonder if it should be considered much more than that. Maybe not. Anyway, I just didn't have fun. Okay. First of all, friend of the show, Harold Bloom, was not a little harsh. <laughs> he was uh, decidedly wrong, I will say. Yeah. Um, man, I feel, and I'll give this person credit too. They they clearly read the book. I think they they yeah uh, were able to understand what what it was getting at, and they just didn't it didn't vibe with them, and that's cool. 
I don't I really don't agree with a lot of their their leverages against the book. Um I don't think it's any less silly than any of his other books. I think it is um and and the same thing with like to to criticize it for referencing Star Trek what three times, four times in the whole book maybe? Yeah. Like that's a that's a lot. That's a stretch. It's not a ton. It's not. Like there's as many Star Trek references I think as there are Bigfoot references. So are we gonna are we gonna hate on the book because it mentions Bigfoot a few times? Like I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't. Um, but it's a this, better written argument against it than any of the other ones so far. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I would agree. It also has footnotes, which I didn't. Read, but um, it's an interesting one. This one is probably the most insufferable. Just you know, buckle up for this. <laughs> um, this was written by Descending Angel on December 27th of 2021. And it says, it's two stars. What's worse than reading a bad book? Reading a bad book that was written by one of your favorite writers. Being objective about it, you can't love everything a favorite writer, band, or movie director does. Vineland is well known to be Pynchon's worst, but there are some who like it and think it's underrated. Good analysis, buddy. The good things about it are that it is Pynchon. It's hard to think of another person that writes the way he does. So it is unique and in places beautifully written, but there's just something lacking. It's tired, which is weird because it took 17 years from Gravity's Rainbow to this. It's also bitter, as some people have pointed out. Pinchon lived through this time with people he knew, and so this can be said that this is his most personal novel until this point and probably all of his work. But I don't think it's the bitter or pissed off that creates genius. I find parts of this novel obvious, over-exaggerating, overreaching. It's like when people today screaming and crying that the Cheeto man is literally Hitler, but instead, Reagan is literally Hitler. So, this book is quite petty at times, which is disappointing. Is it the worst book ever? No. It has redeeming qualities. The writing, the push of the story. I can't say that it's boring. You just called it tired not that long ago. But it is my least favorite book by Pinchon, and I can now move on to Bleeding Edge, the only book I haven't read by Pinchon. To criticize it for being bitter, <laughs> which it is, and I think rightly so. Yeah. But so was Gravity's Rainbow, and way more. Mm-hmm. Like, Gravity's Rainbow was vitriolic in its bitterness. I think Vineland yeah. is, is a little bit more optimistic in its bitterness. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah. And then, yeah, to say it's it sounds tired, but then you weren't bored. You weren't bored. And just the, the random aside to talk about how it's exaggerated and with the Trump thing. I, awful. Yeah, that's. Abandoned at 50%, says Cheryl. It started oh, out. It, it starts out interesting, but the author's meandering writing became boring after a while. It's just not for me. <laughs> how do you not know it's boring for you until you're halfway through it this is I, a, almost a 400 page book yeah i don't know i really don't and by two by page 200 we've there's a lot that's happened Hmm. yep so then here's where we get to three star goodreads reviews which i always find very interesting because three stars can mean a lot of different things to different people yeah that's true um so this is actually from someone that i am friends with on goodreads that i'll read out his review for say his name um but it's a three-star review 
says, and he starts with a quote, believing that the rays coming out of the TV screen would act as a broom to sweep the spirit. A ginormous set of characters stomping around Northern California doing weird shit as the national color shifts its goalposts around them. Zoid leaps through windows, more a symbol of penance than any true means of escape. Hector is so addicted to television that true and was an invention of his deluded mind. Furnessi is a snitch on the federal payroll at computers are leading this bureaucratic change to find ways to budget. And Brock Vond is the unseen but keen on its muscles. These and other lunatic fringe types mix and mingle as everybody moves from consequence. Quote, Frenessi now popped the tube on and checked the listing. Pinchon confronts the lines between fantasy and reality soaked in cinema-saturated trek through the recent past. Borrowing cues from 70s cop dramas, Sea Camp meets compassion as Pinchon makes worlds collide in a kaleidoscopic fireworks display. Three and a half stars, since I doubt anyone comes to Vineland without some Pinchon already, although the old compare and contrast to I thought it was similar, but a lot denser than Inherent Vice, and I really enjoyed rolling symbolically kind of artsy-fartsy wine-tasting where Thunderbird and Boone's Farm are top shelf. It's fun and often funny, but Pinchon's work for at least here we follow a straightforward plot, unlike Gravity's Rainbow Review, because of this book, because of this, this book is much less puzzling and much less of an academic's wet dream. So, it lives in a shadow of Pinchon's greater hits, but it's also that much more accessible. That's an interesting one. It um, is an interesting one, because there's not a lot there about why it's less, why it's not more than three stars. Yeah. Um. I don't. Uh, so this sounds like I, I know people who will refuse to rate things five stars, um, mm-hmm. and instead they'll kind of like almost rescale things from a one to four, but still use the five star rating, which is weird for anybody else who's trying to read those reviews and get a full understanding of it. And I think this is where that falls. Yeah. Um. I mean, they make. I I get where they're coming from. Their va- their criticisms are valid, or at least they're argued well. Um. I. With the exception of, I wouldn't say it's less dense than Inherent Vice. I do disagree with that. I think that's doing a disservice to Inherent Vice. Much like people will always complain about Vineland being pinch on light, I think that's almost the same thing as calling Inherent Vice pinch on light. Um, other than that, though, I don't, I don't have anything that I would like really attack on that review. Like, it's a pretty well written mm-hmm. review, and they they clearly read it, and it just wasn't their jam entirely but at the same time it sounds like there was enough of it that they enjoyed that i'm curious why it was only three five yeah i don't know yeah that's the thing right is he doesn't really say um this next one comes from we read 1872 three stars right ellipses where to start my first pinch on i was actually tempted to give it four stars but part of that was because it fills you with a healthy amount of paranoia against the power there is so much outlandish crap spread around these days that I think we begin to over real corruption, mental backlash. Anyway, the plot, such as it is, you remember that episode of The Simpsons up who's been on the run since the 60s? It's a bit like that with occasional channel interference from Kill Bill and maybe Godzilla. About 90 of it, 90% of it is flashback, although they're not so much flashes as beads. The transitions from time to time and place to place quite something as you can never seem to see them until that happen. It can make finding a natural stopping place. There are no chapters. What? Are a what? little hard. 
You'll be a couple of pages into a new section following new people before you even figured out what the change was that happened. It seems at times stream of consciousness writing with the occasional magical realism. Still not quite sure what a fanatoid is. I'm thinking zombie ghost nihilist, lol. Other idiosyncrasies of the author latter being completely pointless and the former not meaning much to me but perhaps more interesting musical explanation. About 20% of the book feels cut without in any way affecting the story and I'm probably being generous with what I can relevant. There are also two other major mysteries in the one of why the bad guy is doing what he's doing and one about why another character did what she did in the past. Neither of which are really resolved but given the nature of the story I suspected there would be no easy answers, so I wasn't too annoyed by that. Also, given the type of story, I expected it to end with a rather than a bang, and was correct on that too. Although a fade out instead of whimper might be more accurate. I love stream of consciousness, 60s, 80s America, etc. There was a lot I liked here, but perhaps too chaotic to love. <laughs> There's um, no chapters? The dream sequences are pointless? Completely pointless. Those, yeah, that's... Wow, way off base. <laughs> Flatly wrong on the no chapters part. Yeah. Uh, way off base on the dream sequences part. Um, to call it the Simpsons episode where Homer reconnects with his grandma but with channel interference is weird and wildly wrong. I know that episode very well. Um, and it's, I, I think I understand why they would reference that episode, but it's so much that no. It's yeah. so much more than that. And you could cut you could cut 20% of this book. 80 it's about 80 pages of this book. I would mm-hmm. genuinely be curious to know what yeah, 80 I, pages you could cut out of this book. I really have no clue. Really no clue. And 90% of it is flashbacks but not flashbacks. They're beads. What even does that mean? I don't know. I wish I could tell you. Okay, I have nothing else to say. For that. I got, I lost my mind when the no chapters thing happened. I, I have no clue why you would think there's no chapters in the because book. it doesn't say chapter one. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But there's you know like a line running across the there's top of the page. Clear delineation. <laughs> like, the big first letter. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to close out on one more from Robert, who leaves mm-hmm. us with a three-star review. Thomas Pinchon's 1990 novel, Violent, a bit of a bad rap among Pinchon diehard. Personally, I think it's because the fans waited, one, 17 years for another novel by him, and two, expected something as monumental as 1993's Gravity's Rainbow. Violent is not monumentous. In fact... It is almost like a goldsmiths-level experimental novel. In other words, it's pretty easy to follow and not as dense as his previous books. Plot-wise, it's pretty simple as well. Out-of-work rock star Zoid Wheeler is commissioned by the TV attic inspector Hector to find his AWOL wife, Fernessi. In the meantime, his daughter Prairie, accompanied by her friend DL, is on the same mission. However, she wants to find out more about her mother. As this is a Pinchon novel, the plot is taken up by flashbacks, side plots, and a lot of other deviations, but as always, sticks with it, and it all makes sense. Through the past episodes, Pinchon is portraying a part of American history which is more idyllic and turned into a hotbed of paranoia, which still has, after its after day, 
namely through the oversaturation of the Vineland is definitely not Pynchon's best novel. It is, though, full of Pinchonian trademarks. The strange symbolic names, crazy scenes, and memorable characters, psychic detectives, neo-fascists, surfing wedding bands, and situations. It's not as zany as his previous works, but it is funnier and satirical. In a way, Vineland could be seen as a precursor to Inherent Vice. Some shaggy dog plot... Some, yeah, same shaggy dog plot and message about good times gone bad, but I think he did it better in Ivy. Plus, the opening two chapters are absolutely showing Pinchon at his most lucid. Do I recommend Vineland? And Pinchon newbie should check it out. Maybe even read it back-to-back with Inherent Vice. I saw it as a light read, by Pinchon standards, and it is fun. However, if Gravity's Rainbow is your thing, just keep in mind not reach those. I... It just lacks any kind of context for the reasons he's saying what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really, it, it, it maddens me when people say that it doesn't reach the same highs as Gravity's Rainbow mm-hmm. on whatever level you want to level that at. Like, on a prose level, on a, on a thematic level, on a um, ideas level. Like, it, it absolutely can get to that, that high. I think... I don't want to say Gravity's Rainbow is overblown. I think the fan base has a tendency to overblow it at times. I'll say it. That um, book's overrated. It's, I mean, well, it's not my favorite of his by any mm-hmm. means. It's, it's very good. I think that um, it's a, it really is a situation of the fan base elevating it to something that it really truly isn't and it's not unique mm-hmm. to to pinch on's fan base you could this is something that i see with so many fan bases that you know i i get it's an important work and it's it's monumental in their career and their development as a as an artist but that doesn't make it the representation of everything that they're capable of yeah and a lot of times i think those artists go on to make better work as a result of having made that work that is claimed to have been their best um and i think this is uh, the the first comparison that's coming to my mind right now is Radiohead. I think Vineland is <laughs> is there in Rainbows, where it's a lot of people are just shitting on it because it's you know it it's not breaking any new ground or whatever. The, I remember people saying all kinds of weird shit about it in Rainbows, but I think that's one of their best albums, and I think it's a a distillation of everything that they had done up to that point that showed their talents as songwriters and musicians, and took everything that they had done before it and made it into a incredibly cohesive um, and truly astonishing piece of work. I think Vineland is the same thing. I think he took everything he had learned up to that point and was able to distill it into a brilliant piece of work that it, just because it wasn't the one that came before it, it's not good in so many mm-hmm. people's eyes. Yeah, that's crazy to me to think that people used to hate In Rainbows because that is a record that has undergone a a change in opinion where most people I would say now say it's probably their best album if I was to yeah. guess. Yeah. But it, yeah. it was absolutely hated when it came out because it wasn't okay computer and it wasn't kid a. Yeah. It's pretty wild to think that. So true though. Although you also said that half of uh hail of the thief doesn't be there. And I don't, I can't believe that opinion. <laughs> I stand by that. <laughs> Tom York, Tom York even said that. So it's I stand okay by for it. both you and Tom York to be wrong. We can, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have our, we'll stand in our corner and, and sulk. <laughs> um, do you want to read out the message we got on Instagram? Oh yeah. Let me, let me pull that up. So we got a message, uh, from, um, 
Finbed. Great name? Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, it says, uh, hi, all wanted to get in touch with you. This is, I'm sorry. This is on Instagram. Hi, all wanted to get in touch with you. Thank you for this podcast. You've managed to pull me out of my COVID reading slump. Incidentally, my favorite part of chapter 14 is Zoid telling Prairie, enjoy it while you can, while you're light enough for that glass to hold you as she watches him pinball. Great line. I forgot to mention that when we talked about it, that is a fantastic section. Uh, coming right before the discussion of the Golden Gate transition, it neatly covers the essential transience of the psychedelia and Zoid's phase change in life. Also resonates to me with the chapter one defenestration hijinks. Anyway, cheers. Uh, thanks so much, Finbed. Uh, th- the fact that we could pull you out of a reading slump from that time in history mm-hmm. um, is awesome. Uh, so I'm glad that we could uh, we could do that for you. And I hope that you continue uh, to, to hang out with us when we go through the next several books that we have lined up. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that's a great insight on the, on that particular section in chapter fourteen. Yeah, I, I I agree completely. the 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 only other comment that we have is from Leather Papaya fifty five forty, great Reddit username, um, <laughs> who commented on a, a post about some of our audio stuff that we were fixing out or over the past couple weeks. They said, "Thank God it's Friday!" TGIF exclamation point mapping day. Um, Thank you, Leather Papaya fifty five forty. Uh, we appreciate you listening. That's that was that was something that like made my day. day yeah, I... it's really I, I like the fact that we can um, that we've made something that people look forward to listening to. I know there's a lot of like podcasts and stuff that I I get excited for whatever day of the week they come out. So I'm glad we mm-hmm. we have that for someone else. That's a good feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Keep listening, please. We yeah. we love making the show for you guys. Um, all right, so that's going to bring us to the end of chapter 15 and the end of uh, Vineland as a whole. Uh, it's been a really, really great time. We only have uh, one more episode to record, and I feel like we're at a point now where we can announce that our wrap-up episode week is going to be with Seth from the Waste Mailing List Twitter account and YouTube channel. Um, do you want to talk kind of a bit how the two of you got in, co- in contact with one? Well, so I, I, I basically just reached out to him. Seth, it, for those who don't know um, his, his work, uh, I would highly recommend that you go and check out his YouTube channel. He does some great literary analysis on there. Um, and if you like our long discussions on these books and, and the, the intricate kind of level that we try to take with it and, and kind of diving into the subtleties of what we're reading and, and you know really analyze as much of it as we can, um, Seth does all of that by himself for the most part. Um, and he's got some great videos up on some great books. Um, he's got a, his Twitter channel is great too. Um, he always some really good insight on, on whatever it is he's reading at the time. Um, he was also on the books of some substance podcast a little while ago, talking gravity's rainbow. And even earlier than that, talking about crying of lot 49, um, so it was just kind of natural. I felt that we reach out and and see if uh, we could bring him on um, for this book. And um, I don't want to speak for him too much, but he he did, he was excited to cover this particular book with us. And it uh, it seems like he was happy to go back and give it a reread. And and um, I think we're all pretty excited to have him come on and and share his his thoughts on the book as a whole. And um, I think that's going to be a really fun discussion. I'm really excited for it. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Um he's he's got a great he's got a great 
Twitter sort of one sentence review of the book that you can go and look at. Um, and as well as just a lot of other great pinch on on his Twitter page and just the internet as a whole. So please do go and check out his work. Um, so we'll be doing that wrap up with Seth next week, and then we'll be off for a few weeks, normal books. But when we return, we are prepared to announce at this time that the book that we will be covering on the next season of the Mapping Zone podcast will be Thomas Pinchon's eighth novel, Bleeding Edge, published in 2013. That is what we are going to be reading next. So if you haven't read it, this is your opportunity to get ahead of us and start rereading it or to start reading it for the first time. Um, I'm really looking forward to covering that book. And I know that it's another one that just just lacks lacks awareness out in the public. It hasn't had much opportunity to to grow and get shaped into any kind of a, a discussion topic amongst people, or at least to a lesser degree than a lot of his older work has. So I'm excited that we're going to be getting into that one next. Yeah, that's going to be a fun one. And I know uh, Will is just now reading it. He hadn't read it before. So um, this will be, I think, the first time that we have a book that one of us has not actually read or will be reading for the first time, rather. So I'm really mm-hmm. excited to see um, his thoughts and opinions on it. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I will say this now to give people an additional context. You should go watch the documentary We Live in Public as well. For preparation for Bleeding Edge, um, I'll talk more about that at a future point, but I would highly recommend you all watch that documentary before we dive into the into the novel, because I think it provides some important context for some of the stuff that we're going to start talking about once those episodes start getting recorded. But at any rate, thank you so much for listening. Keep the emails, keep the comments going. We'll always have them on the show. And try and continue to, to build that open dialogue with you all. We love getting the feedback. And it's been great receiving more of that over the course of uh, recording these episodes. It really has. Thank you all for listening and, and writing and, and just doing all of this with us. It's been a, an absolute blast. Yeah, 100%. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay. Brave words. Do, your, do yourself a favor at some point. Um, God, I can't remember the name of it now, but they made it, Kiss made a movie and they tried real, real hard to bury that movie. Um, but there are still clips of it online. Um, I think it's like they, they basically take ownership of an amusement park. Um, and there's a lot of like 70s karate and like it, it plays like uh, one of the, uh, one of the fake films in Boogie Nights without the porn parts, like just the real cheap acting and bad. Mm-hmm like quote unquote kung fu um it's it is something else i mean there's clips of it all over youtube so kiss me it's the phantom of the park that's what it's called look that up spend some time with that it's surreal it's wild did you know as a slightly related but mostly off topic comment did you know that uh, danzig is directing movies now are you serious i'm unfortunately very serious (sighs) I don't know he's, what to think about that. He's made two movies, and both of them are... Are they about the bricks in his neighbor's yard? No. one of you them not, is, Have you heard that story? I don't think so. <laughs> Finish your thought. <laughs> one of them is like a porn-level bad film that is like a, a horror anthology. And I think he actually casted real porn stars, given the acting quality and how a lot of the people in it look. 
And then the other one is the most confusing film I think I've ever watched, where it just seems like he left all the raw footage in and didn't ed- edit any of himself and or any, any of it out. And there's like almost no music, diegetic or otherwise, and also like no sound effects were added in. Like there's a scene where a cowboy's in a saloon and there's just no noise. He's just like walking around silently drinking until eventually he goes upstairs with a prostitute and then an action scene happens, but there's just literally no no noise whatsoever. It it's it's shocking how bad his films are. Wow. That's I'll have to watch that. <laughs> yeah. Uh the first one he made is called Veronica. And the second one that he's made is called like The Death Rider or something like that. Um and there is a cameo by Fred Armisen in the Death Rider. Very hard to explain its existence away. <laughs> Weird. Earlier we were talking about Danzig and mm-hmm. his attempt at filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned the uh, the brick story. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I found out about this from um, some of my friends, the guys I used to be in a band with. Um, I had no idea about this until like last year. Uh, so this is a transcript. I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's pretty short. Um, and it, it is debated whether this is true or not. I kind of hope it is because it seems like it might. Um, so basically, this guy says, dude, Danzig lives next door to me in L.A., down the street, and he is the worst neighbor ever. Dude, I have Danzig stories. And this friend says, no shit. And he says, like one awesome one. Yes, dude, I can't believe you said Danzig. You realize this may be our number one topic at work. <laughs> so here's the Danzig story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, we always say, what do you think Danzig is doing right now? He says, Danzig lives in this shithole house near me in Los Feliz, about 100 yards down the street. His house is super run down, but he's got this crazy Jaguar in the backyard. Anyway, so he has this huge pile of bricks in his front yard, and the house looks like an evil Pixar house. So anyway, his neighbor was like, dude... <laughs> His neighbor was like, dude, Danzig, you're bringing property values down with these bricks in your yard. And Danzig was pissed. So anyway, back and forth with his neighbor and Danzig. And finally, one day I see Danzig outside in his front yard. And he's just hurling bricks into his dumpster, screaming, here I am, motherfucker, just cleaning up my fucking bricks, bitch. (laughs) Just super loud to no one in particular for two hours. (laughs) Which... Knowing Danzig, like how he built <laughs> what he looked like. just fucking kills me every time. The fact that he's talking to himself while he's doing it. Oh my god. I love that he lives in Los Feliz. I feel like that makes so much sense for him. In a shitty house with a rundown yeah. Jaguar. <laughs> It looks like a Disney Pixar villain's house. And I want to say someone found pictures of the of the house too. Uh, I can't. I got to see if I can find that. Oh my god! But that's one of my favorite. Oh, there are pictures. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Here I am cleaning up my bricks. Oh my god. Okay, here we go. Yep, I found it. Danzig, Danzig's infamous bricks. Oh my god. Let me, I'm going to put the link up in the Discord for you. 
that's almost as weird as the frickin' um, Steven Seagal cake story. Any story about Steven Seagal? It's always gold. Yeah. That fucking guy. I think I told that story in, in like the yeah. after show. Yeah. Just a just a glass of water and a and a whole a whole cake. <laughs> oh, apparently there's a video about the bricks too. Oh my god, <laughs> Dan I haven't seen that. Infamous bricks. I think I was just posted to evil buildings. Evil buildings. Too. Yeah. <laughs> and you can kind of see the dumpster in the background. I think. <laughs> yeah, you can on the other side of that other fence. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh god. Fucking Glenn Danzig. He's just a real life cartoon character, is what Glenn. He Danzig really is. is. He really is. Have you seen that video of him getting knocked out after he? Like tries to be tough in that guy's face. Oh yes, I had forgotten about that. Always one of my favorites. Oh man, fucking Glenn Danzig! Jesus Christ! I just yeah, where did where did where did he come from? You know, where did Glenn Danzig's come from? <laughs> That's a good question. Because <laughs> you know he's not the only one running around out. There. No, there's, there's definitely more of him. There's other Glenn Danzigs. <laughs> they made, he's like the Urukai in, in Lord of the Rings. Someone yeah. evil's just making them and letting them run loose. <laughs> oh my god. Man is 68 years old. Yeah, he's he's getting real old. Man, Glenn Danzig. Not look, music's not even that good. Some of the early Misfit stuff. The, I, the I Misfit stuff is you. fine. Danzig though, you can take Solo that shit Danzig, home. Yeah, I don't. I can't. I can't fuck with that. No. Whoever told him to record that freaking um, Elvis album? He should fire. Oh, I forgot that was even a thing. That wasn't even that long ago. No. Yeah. Yeah. That I I could never believe that. When when I first learned that he recorded that Elvis covers album, and then I saw it in person in a record store, and I went, oh, it's real. I thankfully that was after I worked at a record store, so I never had to deal with that horseshit. Jesus, I would have slapped anybody who came in asking for that. And we had, I we had a lot of people that asked for bad albums, and it was hard to sell them. But mm-hmm. mm. yeah, I just why. I, I don't understand him. That's another one of those situations of like, who asked for this? Yeah, exactly. Who was sitting around going, I gotta hear pound. <laughs> Can we please get Glenn Danzig to sing Love Me? Please. The yeah. world needs this. It's 2020. Like, I can kind of understand, I guess, the concept. Like, if if Peter Steele had done an Elvis I'd be more interested in that. I could see that. Yeah, I could see that. And he's still in that, like, gothic, you know. But it's, it's the Danzig specifically where I'm just like, why? What, what were you cooking up? Or what did you think you were cooking up over there in the studio? Yeah. I think if I'm going to take a big, tall, long-haired dude, I'm going to take Peter Steele over. over mm-hmm. Danzig. He's hotter, too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Sucks that he died. I remember that. That fucking sucked. Yeah, just was was too large of a person. That, yeah, that 
that's just such a hard thing for people yeah. to to live with which is always a weird thing to think about yeah just like yeah you can be too you can be physically too large of a just to your almost, body like, almost gives seven up. feet tall yeah he's huge i never got to see them in concert i always wanted to but man that would have been such a good show typo negative yeah yeah I, I will I will always miss out on the fact that I I never got to see them. I want to go back and watch Deathbed again now. I don't have that tape anymore though. Oh no, not the, there's <laughs> there's a place here in Madison where it's some guy's VHS archive and you can check out VHS tapes from it. Oh, that's cool. It, it is really cool. Yeah, he's got like thousands of freaking VHS tapes from all across the world for with with like different types of cinema. It's really good. Makes me wish I still had a VS VCR. Yeah, I had one up until I think five years ago. I had an old CRT TV that had it built into it, and that was the last uh, VHS player I had. And it just died. I was I the last thing I watched on it was a Frank Zappa bootleg. Actually, oh hell yeah! I think part of the problem uh-huh. is that I I can't see Michael Sarah as anyone except George Michael Bluth. So <laughs> I just it just looked like George He's Michael was in his like, first ever role in your mind. <laughs> it sucks. And I feel bad for him because I like him, but mm-hmm. I just can't like I have a weird history with Arrested Development. And so yeah. it's a uh, it, it that show stays in my mind a lot. It's a good show. And I, it is. I actually so going back. OK, I'm going to I'm going to tie this back to our VHS discussion from earlier. Nice. Um. I so I this would have been when did that show debut? Two thousand one. Arrested Development. Two thousand three. Um. So I got a I got a phone call. This would have been right before I left for college. Um. I got a phone call at my house, and I used to have a habit of like anyone who called, I would answer, and if it was telemarketers, I would just screw with them because I had nothing else to do, and I wanted to mm-hmm. waste their time. Mm-hmm. So I answered the phone and it's this, this lady was like, Hey, we're doing a, um, a survey for new TV shows and we want to send out tester tapes and get people's opinions. So if you want, we can, we'll send you these two shows and we want you to watch the episode, uh, the pilot episode for these shows and tell us what you think. Okay. I thought they were joking and it was just, I was wasting someone else's time. Lo and behold, like six weeks later, I get two VHS tapes in the mail one of them is the pilot episode of Arrested Development, which had not aired at that time. Um, I, the other one, I can't remember what it was, but it had Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Um, okay. And it wasn't good. It just was not. I don't even remember if it ever made it to air. Um, <laughs> but it was just it was very sit- standard sitcom kind of thing. It was just not great. But then they called me back like two weeks later, and they were like, hey, what did you think of the shows? And I was like, Arrested Development was great. I that that show was hilarious and I loved it. And it was totally different than a lot of sitcoms that are on right now and blah, 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 blah. The other one, whatever, it was terrible. And then <laughs> Arrested Development becomes a thing like shortly thereafter. It was really weird. Did you have to send them the tape back or do you still have that tape? I did have to send the tape back, unfortunately. Dang, that would yeah. have been cool to have. Yeah. I do wish I could have kept that, but it was just a regular VHS tape with a white sticker that said Arrested Development on it. I wish for the life of me I could remember the other show. Um, it was interesting that it had Julia Louis-Dreyfus because she went on to be in Arrested Development, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, whatever that other show was, just 
Yeah. I think that um, Carl Weathers' appearance on Arrested Development might be my favorite cameo that's ever been in anything. <laughs> his obsession just, with Stu. His obsession with Stu, the fact that he's like a super cheap, like, skeevy, like, L.A. guy. <laughs> like it's it's so incredible oh my god the first three seasons of that show were just about perfect yep and then everyone I, got too famous and it was impossible to record them in the same room and netflix yep. tried anyway fucked yep. it all up yep <laughs> i could not i could i could not do season four at all it's not and worth I watching didn't even try season <clears throat> five season five's worse is it <laughs> yeah it's worse I remember hearing when Netflix picked it up and they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to show. It's basically like we're doing one episode, but from different POVs. I was like, there's no way that's going to be good. Like, you can't hold that for a season. No. And the whole reason was just that they literally could not get get them in the same room as each other because everyone was too fucking famous. Like, that's the crazy thing to me is that this show that was like this sitcom in the early 2000s you know, ended up, A, having some of the most advanced humor. Like, that had that has currently modern humor in it in 2003. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, all of the people that were on that and what they ended up doing afterwards. It's wild. Yeah, it's wild. Dave Attell's cameo where he's playing. Um, oh, God. Freaking... <laughs> Because yeah, you gotta go talk to his talk to his wife. Wait, this guy's straight. <laughs> I'm just glad that the the world doesn't need VCRs anymore. Like, oh come on, man! <laughs> I mean, I, I'm all for archiving things, but a cassette's not a very stable archive. Well, how not, else not are you gonna record things. the news? That's a great question. How am I gonna <laughs> record the news? <laughs> All those times in my life I've regretted not recording the news. Bill O'Reilly. I never considered that. It's, you know, people talk about like having a pocket knife as, you know, a transformative moment where you realize that like there there are things in your life that you've been ignoring that you could have been cutting. (laughs) I think this is one of those situations. If I'd had a VCR, I could have been recording the news this entire time. Could have been recording nightly news, yeah. It's an important. We have to preserve our our local broadcast and nightly news. How many dogs are in the streets these days? We'll talk to animal control after six. That's right. That's that's where all the real news is getting reported. It's not CNN. Yeah. It's not MSNBC. No. It's none of those places. It's, it's all none of it's uh, recorded in any other mode either. Certainly not. No, no. <laughs> only VHS tapes. Only VHS tapes. And they're all kept in <laughs> clamshell cases. <laughs> He's got the whole archive from 1985 to yeah. 2024 every night of news. <laughs> if I need to remember what happened in San Antonio on you know December 7th, 1994, guess who can find out? Oh, my God. A police interrogation where your alibi is I was watching the news. Yeah, and you have an actual <laughs> yeah. recording vault. I, I had to be there to stop that tape, officer. <laughs> I don't was believe... going to adjust the V-hold without me. Exactly. <laughs> these damn automated VCRs they have these days. Yeah. I don't believe in timers. 
<laughs> you know, I tried one of those and it ate the first tape I put in it. And I said, no, only fully manual for me. Right. Still rewind <laughs> my cassette tapes with a pencil, too. It's the only pure way to do it. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> oh, <sighs> holy cow, should we start the show? <laughs>